When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear Unshaken Saints. Jared Halverson here, grateful to be with you again. I apologize that for the second week in a row, this video is coming out later than usual. I'm still trying to dig my way out from under the avalanche of things that piled up as I was trying to, you know, to push things to the back burner to be able to keep put out some fires at home. And I'm grateful for your patience with me. Not only your patience, but just your compassion. I am so hopelessly behind on reading comments or responding to questions or answering messages that you've sent in Facebook or email or whatever it might be. I, I really do plan and hope to get to those, uh, but it's probably been a month since I've been able to even look at anything. And, uh, but I, I took a quick moment to glance over a few comments from this last week's video, afraid that people would be up in arms that it came out later than usual. But there was no, uh, no censure, just compassion. Uh, no, where's the video? And instead just, I was hoping you were okay. The video didn't come out as, uh, on, on the normal day. and. I just hoped that nothing bad was happening at home. Well, we had plenty of things happening. Uh, and again, I appreciate your compassion and patience with, with me as I'm trying to keep that snorkel tip <laughs> just out of the, the top of the water. But your enthusiasm for my son's service mission, uh, your, your high hopes uh, that I can uh, press forward on dissertation, I'm just, it really does feel like a, a, just a, a family uh, or a group of friends sitting around talking about Scripture. I've been running into more and more of you in, uh, in the community or in grocery stores or at gas stations or things. And there's just, to me, it's so wonderful to, to put a face behind the camera uh, so that I know who I'm talking to. And I hope that, that you see a friend on the screen, that it's not just some stranger talking Scripture but someone who cares about you, as I know you care about me and my family, and this past week you've made that clear. So thank you, and bless you for that. Also thank you for the help that you've been giving in the comment section. I did notice several of you are beginning to include the timestamps and things that you've noticed in the lessons that have been helpful to you. Uh, that's going to be, once I have time to read them all, it'll be nice for me to be, get a kind of gauge what's most valuable in a particular lesson, especially since next year we'll have to be much more selective in the Old Testament. Uh, and also, hopefully it's helping, you're helping one another navigate these long videos by being able to tell what are some, some things that are worth, worth tuning into. So again, uh, bless you, my friends. I'm grateful to be able to study the scriptures with you and, and that we can, as Elder Maxwell used to say, the Lord puts not just the planets in orbit, but puts our lives in orbit. And I'm so grateful that, uh, that the planets have aligned so that we can study scripture together. And, and what scripture we have to study together this week. Uh, section 121, 2 and 3 are the Liberty Jail revelations. Liberty Jail, that temple prison, as B.H. Roberts called it. Uh, such a highlight in, in terms of the truth and light that God gives us and, and such a low moment as far as the history of the church was concerned. Uh, with Joseph Smith languishing in prison. I, I remember the first time I taught this in seminary, my very first student teaching year, not much older than my, than my students were. And I just wanted them to have an experience of sorts 
at the time, the seminary building was under, uh, it was being remodeled. And so they moved us into a chapel that was near the school. And I was the low man on the totem pole. Still am, I think, uh, deservedly so. But uh, while well, the release study room was taken and the, and the Sunday school, you know, all the, the good rooms, the teaching classrooms were taken in the building. And so they, they put me up on the stage. And uh, with complete with stage lights and everything else. And sometimes that was tricky. But the day that we studied these revelations, I remember the stage was the best place. Because in a way, we wanted to set the stage for the experience Joseph and his fellow prisoners were having. Almost so that we could become fellow prisoners with them. And so we, we set up on the stage. No, there were no tables and chairs. Well, there were tables, but they were all toppled. Uh, to create the outs, the kind of the the parameters, the limits of what the size of the Liberty Jail cell would have been, uh, we had. I was grateful for for stage lights that day because we turned off all the overheads and had just some dim light, as if it would have been in that winter of 1838 to 39, the coldest months in Missouri, as for four months in Liberty Jail and and for a month. In, in Richmond Jail and others as they were on their way. I mean, this is about five and a half months total of imprisonment for Joseph and his fellow prisoners. And in, in Liberty, particularly in the cold, in a room that they couldn't stand up uh, to full strength, to full height, being fed on food that was sometimes poisoned or polluted. The, the things that they went through in this dungeon, often sleeping on dirty straw or just cold stone and and just wishing and waiting for better days. And so there on that stage, my students sitting on the floor, wondering what was going on until I explained, welcome to liberty. Uh, our hope was that we could feel just a little of what it was like for him and for his, his fellow prisoners. In fact, that word, which is what I wanted us to feel a little bit like that day, and what I hope that we'll feel today as we study these revelations, if you remember last week when we talked about Eunice McRae, the one of the great mama bears of the Restoration, and the Restoration is full of them, both uh, past and present, uh, thank heaven, and and her her fortitude and her gutsiness to be able to face down the mobbers that were coming to trash her home. Well, her husband Alexander was one of the one of the six men that was in Liberty Jail, and one of the things that he said about his experience there. I had the honor of being a fellow prisoner with him. Speaking of Joseph Smith, the honor of being a fellow prisoner. Oh, I, I, this was a power couple, Alexander and Eunice McRae, and, and one was not one whit behind the other. Uh, but to, to how, I, I, my, my prayer for today, my friends, is that we will feel like fellow prisoners of Joseph Smith, but that we'll sense the honor of that designation. As we learn from him and from the Lord, the things that, that these revelations are, are intending to convey. And I do mean learning from him and from the Lord. I don't know if there's a better example in the Doctrine and Covenants of, of synergy in a revelation where you can see human fingerprints and divine fingerprints mingled together on the page. Where you can hear Joseph's voice answered by the voice of God. What we have in these revelations, section 121-23, are portions, excerpts, of a very long letter that Joseph wrote from Liberty Jail. Thankfully, he wrote several. And at the end of today's lesson, I'll, I'll bring up some of the, 
Oh, to me, scripture, lowercase s, that was never canonized from some of the other letters that Joseph wrote from Liberty and some of the other uncanonized portions of the letter that he wrote that, that these revelations come from. But it's interesting to read the original and to, to kind of eyes open when you recognize language and go, oh, that's, I recognize that from section 121. And then it slowly kind of fades into language that, that didn't get canonized. It wasn't until what was it, the 1876, I believe, was the edition of the Doctrine and Covenants where these revelations first appear, and that was at Brigham Young's request, uh, realizing that this is church history that deserves to be church scripture as well. But it'd be fascinating to get into their heads at the time and, and as they read and study these letters and, and decide what part is worth canonizing as opposed to, as opposed to what parts are not. Uh, maybe there's a center of gravity on the humanity-divinity divide as we're proving those contraries. And, and as I've read the entire letter, it was 29 pages when first written. Uh, so this is a very long letter. Uh, and it, there is a different feel, a different spirit as it shifts between the parts that we now have in the Doctrine and Covenants and the parts that were left out. Uh, and, I, and to me, that's true to form. Often as I'm giving priesthood blessings, there are, day, there are times in the blessing that I am, I am speaking under my best intention, where I am trying to muster faith and, and speak on behalf of God. There are other times I simply know that God is speaking through me. And while every, the entire blessing is, is a combination of, of divine and mortal efforts, uh, even the pure divinity has to come through a mortal mouth. But there are times where it just you can sense and feel that the center of gravity has shifted. And that this is, this is exactly what God wants. It, that he's initiating the conversation here. Instead of simply validating or honoring what one of his servants is, is doing his or her best to convey. As they speak, as they teach, as they lead, as they, as they function in his name. Now, uh, as far as, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the history today. Uh, to make sense of what the saints have been going through, we talked a little bit about that last week. The Missourians had hoped to contain the contagion uh, of, of early Mormonism to, to a county that they just carved out and said, that's where the Latter-day Saints can stay. Well, that was, that's kind of un-American if you think about it. And there were Latter-day Saints that were moving in and saying, what do you mean I can't? It's my constitutional right to live where I want. And so they were beginning to spread out beyond just the confines of that county. There were problems uh, on the Missourians' part. There were problems on the Latter-day Saints' part. And friction eventually grew and grew until there, was, until there was outright violence. And you see things like the Battle of Crooked River where Do uh, David W. Patton is killed and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Hor horrifically, you see the Hans Mill Massacre uh, and what took place there. In fact, uh, there's another... Mama Bear of the Restoration. Amanda Smith is her name, not, no relation to Joseph. But Amanda is, is this, you've probably heard this story that in the Hans Mill Massacre, when the boy, uh, her husband was killed there, her son, one of her sons was killed there, another son was shot in the hip, and his whole hip was blown away. And this is the incredible, miraculous story of her just praying for the divine healer of us all to inspire her to know what to do to help her, her son and to make this this poultice the, uh, from, from the roots and bark of a tree and to put it in there and dress the wound and, I mean, miraculous things until gristle formed that was flexible enough to function as a hip. 
I mean, this is the woman who asked her son, do you believe that the Lord who made your hip in the first place can remake it? And he believed because his mother believed. He did not doubt that his mother knew it. And so, and so it happened. But there's, a, there's an after, I guess it's not aftermath yet, uh, in the immediate aftermath of the massacre itself, uh, long before this boy's hip is healed. There's a time when, afraid of what's going on and, and worried that the mobbers are going to come back and, and attack again, she's hiding out in a cornfield, just wondering what to do. And as I said of Liberty Jail, that it was a temple prison for Joseph, that cornfield became a temple of sorts for Amanda Smith. She said it herself. It was as the temple of the Lord to me at that moment. I prayed aloud and most fervently. When I emerged from the corn, a voice spoke to me. It was a voice as plain as I ever heard one. It was no silent, strong impression of the Spirit, but a voice repeating a verse of the saint's hymn. That soul who on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And from that moment, she said, I had no more fear. I felt that nothing could hurt me. That is the faith of those early Latter-day Saints. As Governor Boggs eventually signs the extermination order and drives all, oh, it's somewhere between 12 and 15,000 Latter-day Saints out of the state in the winter to cross the Mississippi and find shelter among a group of, oh, saints that were not Latter-day Saints, but saintly people in Quincy, Illinois, willing to accept all of these refugees and care for them. That's part of our tradition, our history as well, and I hope that we're treating those in need and with similar kindness and compassion. But to see what they endured as they, as they, as they went, as they fled. Meanwhile, where's Joseph and Hiram and Sidney Rigdon, Lyman White, Caleb Baldwin, and Alexander McRae? They're in Liberty Jail during this time period. To backtrack just a bit, when Joseph was betrayed by, by some of his closest friends, uh, Orson Hyde, Thomas B. Marsh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve, W.W. Phelps, when they signed affidavits uh, accusing Joseph of wanting to take over the world, basically, uh, of trying to explain some of the anti-Missouri vigilante justice among certain Latter-day Saints, Governor Boggs took that seriously to the point of driving everyone out of the state. But George Hinkle, hard to decide what his motivation was, if it was self-serving or, given the benefit of the doubt, trying to preserve at least some particle of peace, when he delivered Joseph Smith over to the mob, when Joseph just thought he was going to, to discuss things and try to figure out how to, how to establish peace again, when he betrayed him and Joseph was arrested, and torn from the arms of his family to go to prison. Actually, it wasn't even going to be prison originally. It was going to be execution in the town square. And if it weren't for an incredibly valiant and courageous non-Latter-day Saint Missourian, Alexander Donovan, Joseph could have been killed. But Alexander stood up for him. And thankfully, the Lord reassured Joseph all the way through. On the one hand, you get a Missouri leader like General John B. Clark, who said this to the saints, as for your leaders, do not once think, do not imagine for a moment, do not let it enter your mind that they will be delivered or that you will see their faces again. For their fate is fixed, their die is cast, 
their doom is sealed. Can you imagine hearing that from the people that are now in charge of the situation, that have Joseph under, under chain? Well, meanwhile, how does Joseph respond? He reassures his fellow captives, Be of good cheer, brethren. The word of the Lord came to me last night that our lives should be given us, and that whatever we may suffer during this captivity, not one of our lives should be taken. Oh, just enough reassurance. We will survive this. I don't know what we'll have to suffer in the meantime, but we will survive. And with that faith, they moved forward. Joseph again described his feelings at the time. As far as I was concerned, I felt perfectly calm and resigned to the will of my Heavenly Father. I knew my innocence as well as that of the saints, and that we had done nothing to deserve such treatment from the hands of our oppressors. Consequently, I could look to that God who has the lives of all men in his hands, and who had saved me frequently from the gates of death for deliverance. And notwithstanding that every avenue of escape seemed to be entirely closed, and death stared me in the face, and that my destruction was determined upon as far as man was concerned, yet from my first entrance into the camp, I felt an assurance that I, with my brethren and our families, should be delivered. Yes, that still small voice, which has so often whispered consolation to my soul in the depths of sorrow and distress, bade me be of good cheer and promised deliverance, which gave me great comfort. And although the heathen raged and the people imagined vain things, yet the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, was my refuge. And when I cried unto him in the day of trouble, he delivered me, for which I call upon my soul and all that is within me to bless and praise his holy name. For although I was troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. There's Joseph channeling Paul again, as he often did when he was being persecuted. Or suffering. In fact, one last statement from Paul that I think puts in perspective what we're about to study in these revelations. As Paul himself is in prison and writing to a fellow saint, Timothy, he says, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. You see how Paul felt about his confinement? Same with Joseph Smith. You may put me under lock and key, but nothing can stop this work from progressing. The word is not bound. And to see what, what truth and light and wisdom flowed from beyond the, the, the prison cell of Liberty Jail, announcing liberty to the captives. Well, this is liberty being announced from the captives themselves. And to see what, what the Lord can teach us even in our darkest days is, is truly inspiring. So as Joseph writes this letter to the members of the church that are now across the river in, in Illinois, he begins by describing what he's going through, what the saints are, are dealing with there. And as his letter shifts into scripture, it begins with these questions. And they are questions of the soul that perhaps you or I have wondered in, in our dark prison days. Joseph asked, O oh God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens, 
the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? Now, some people read those words and wonder if Joseph is having a faith crisis there in the depths of his own despair. I can see where they're coming from, but I don't read it that way. To me, hiding behind every question mark is an exclamation point showing Joseph's faith. God, where art thou? is an acknowledgement that I know you're up there somewhere. I just don't know where, but I know you're there. When he asks, how long shall thy hand be stayed? It's a recognition that I know you can reach out to rescue us. Or thine eye, how long will it, will it behold the wrongs of thy people? I know you're seeing this. I know you're aware and that we're not forgotten. How long will your ear be penetrated? I know you're up there listening. He does not, he's not questioning the existence or the omnipotence or the omniscience of God. Every one of those questions acknowledges that. He's simply wondering how long until you come to save us? How long until your heart is softened? Now, does that suggest God has a hardened heart? I wouldn't put it in those terms. I wonder instead, I'll put it this way, there, there are times where as a parent, I have to almost steel my heart against the cries of my children because what they're going through is, is necessary. I remember the first time that our, when our, our, our oldest was born and she had to get her immunizations. And I remember taking her in, my wife and I took our, our daughter in and there's all these syringes lined up on the, on the counter. And I thought, wow, is this for all the kids that are in line out in the, in the waiting room? And, and he's like, no, these ones are all for your daughter. I'm sorry. It's like, whoa, okay. And my wife said, you hold her, I'm gonna wait in the hall. And I thought, oh great, uh, thanks for, for leaving me here uh, <laughs> to supper with her. And I just remember her going from, from white to pink to red to purple based on how many pricks in, in, the, in the thigh and just her screams getting louder and louder. And I, I just had to hold her there. And as soon as it was done, my wife ran in and whisked her away. And I thought, oh, great. Associate comfort with mom and pain with dad. That's, <laughs> that's not fair. Uh, but, but instead to see this is for my daughter's good. And I have to... Well, I'll put it this way. My father-in-law, who's the closest thing to Job I've ever met because of the suffering he has been through in life. When, if, you, if you were to ask him, what's the attribute of God that you're most impressed with? He would say divine restraint. That having a heart so full of love and compassion for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But even that was divine restraint as that beloved son cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There had to be a hardening of heart for our sake, not hardened against us, but there had to be a strength on God's part, not to simply come rushing in and rescuing us the moment things got hard. Because how do we grow from that? I've asked my, my institute students, have you ever been in the gym and had an overeager spotter? That the moment you're starting to struggle under a weight that you're trying to lift, they just come in and rescue you far too quickly? How do you feel about that rescuer? No, it, where's your restraint? I'm trying to build muscle here. 
And as God knows that he sent us to a day at the gym, not a day at the spa, how will we respond under the weight of affliction? I'm amazed by God's divine restraint and by a heart that by nature is soft. Holding back some of that softness so that we can grow in strength. That's what Joseph is wondering. Can I really lift this bar? Or are we going to be crushed under its weight? Will you be moved with compassion toward us? And that's all that God is ever moved by, is compassion. Makes me wonder when he asked in verse 1 about the pavilion that covereth God's hiding place. A pavilion is a tent. And if you're thinking about the house of Israel in their journeys toward a promised land, there was a pavilion that covered the hiding place of God. And that was the tabernacle, this mobile temple. And as the saints had been driven from a temple site in far west and a temple site in independence and had to abandon a temple, uh, a completed temple in Kirtland, is there a tabernacle? Is there a refuge? Is there a covert from storm and from rain? Because we're getting drenched out here. Where is that pavilion? Will you let us in? Will you part the veil so that we can come into the covenant that is covered by the mercy seat, the throne of atonement? Father, where art thou? And can we be with you wherever that happens to be? That is Joseph's desire and the saints' desire through all of this. You see more of that faith in verse 4. O Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven, earth, and seas. Again, there's no doubt about God's omnipotence here. Maker of all things that in them are, and who controllest and subjectest the devil and the dark and benighted dominion of Sheol. So compared to that, Missouri mobbers are nothing. And if you can keep Lucifer himself in his place, if you can chain Leviathan, then I know that you're in charge of our circumstances here and that I will trust you. Stretch forth thine hand, he asks. Let thine eye pierce. Let thy pavilion be taken up. Let thy hiding place no longer be covered. Let thine ear be inclined. Let thine heart be softened and thy bowels moved with compassion toward us. I love all of those lets in verse 4. We're going to see a let on the Lord's part at the end of this section. Uh, and let is another word for just allow it, just yield. We've talked about this before that merging onto the freeway was the scariest thing on earth when you were learning how to drive. And now it's, it's second nature. Yielding isn't supposed to be that hard. You're just allowing someone to go in front of you. It's almost the, the, the natural, it would take more effort not to yield. I have to put up my dukes and do something to, to keep from simply allowing something to take place. And here, I know yours is a heart that's soft. I know that yours are bowels filled with compassion. Gut, that's bowels for you. It, it is, it's, it's that deep within you. It is this visceral yearning on the part of God to come to our aid. And it's only his divine restraint that is, that is keeping him from yielding to his truest, kindest, most paternal self. 
And here Joseph, with all the faith in that eye and that ear and that hand and that heart and those bowels of mercy. God, have we, have we, have we pulled enough muscle? Have we built enough strength? Can you, can you come to our aid? Now, verse 5, we shift from God's mercy to God's justice. As Joseph prays, let thine anger be kindled against our enemies. And in the fury of thine heart, with thy sword, avenge us of our wrongs. Remember thy suffering saints, O our God, and thy servants will rejoice in thy name forever. That's all we're asking for. Mercy for us, justice for our persecutors. Remember in the Kirtland Dedicatory Prayer, section 109 a few weeks ago, where Joseph is praying for mercy for his persecutors. Well, here, mercy is always counterbalanced with justice. And here he's praying for justice to be meted out against his enemies on behalf of the suffering saints. Remember them. It's interesting that, it, that yes, he mentions it back in verse 2, thy servants. So part of this prayer is regarding him and his fellow servants, his fellow prisoners in Liberty Jail. But so much of what he's asking for in these verses is not about him. It's about the suffering saints. And that's an, that's a, that is Christ-like as well. As Jesus, in those last moments from, from Last Supper until the, the end of his crucifixion, constantly thinking of others more than of himself, comforting the apostles at the Last Supper when their hearts were troubled, even though Jesus' heart was troubled infinitely more, healing the ear of the servant of the centurion in Gethsemane, uh, protecting the apostles as he delivered himself into the hands of, of the Roman soldiers, to, to comfort the mothers of Israel on his way to Calvary, or making sure that his mother would be cared for after his death. Constantly, Jesus was thinking of others. And in these first few verses, Joseph is thinking more of the saints there in Illinois than he is of himself languishing in liberty. The voice then shifts in verse 7 to that of God, as you read the full letter, it's amazing to watch just this gradual, gentle passing of the microphone, so to speak, from Joseph to the Lord, Joseph's deep entreaties, and then God's compassionate response. Verse 7, my son. Joseph's been called a lot of things in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's been my servant. He's been my friend. But here, as intimately as you can get, my son, peace be unto thy soul. This is the equivalent of peace be still, but not said to the winds and the waves, rather to the suffering servants. God does not calm the storm here. He calms the sailor. You will yet be in Liberty Jail a little longer, Joseph, before your jailers will come to their senses and allow you to escape as they are transferring you from one place to another. They know that they have no justice on their side either. But endure. Okay, peace be to thy soul. Thine adversity, thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. And seen through the eye of the eternal perspective, even a lifetime of suffering is a small moment. There are so many places in scripture where the Lord tries to compare the, the, the affliction that we, we endure in this life compared to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us. If we, can, if we can keep those things in perspective, a small moment 
can be endured. But notice in verse 8, mere endurance is not what the Lord is asking for. He says, and then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. It's that adverb. The verb endure is essential, but the adverb well is what, is what distinguishes between mere survival and true thriving, growing you know, under duress. To see someone endure things well. I remember in college, uh, a sister, this this amazing young lady who was confined to a wheelchair her whole life and yet had, had a spirit that could not be confined by anything. She was truly incredible and the life of every party. Yeah, so optimistic. You just, you couldn't even feel sorry for her because she didn't feel sorry for herself and was just so full of life. Uh, she didn't have legs, but she had wings and she knew how to use them. And it was amazing. At one point she was going through a, another trial and she asked for a priesthood blessing. And I remember speaking of the center of gravity from, from mortal priesthood holder to divine uh, source of the blessing. In the middle of that blessing, I felt so clearly the Lord speaking through scripture as I blessed this young woman and praised her for enduring it well. And what, what didn't end up being spoken, but what I felt so clearly was the rest of that verse. That because she was enduring her trials so well, she would be exalted on high. I, I, knew that, I knew that verse well enough that when the Lord inspired me with the, the first half, I knew what, that the second half was implied. And to me, there's just something profound about that reassurance. As the Lord, remember that phrase in the war chapters that they were visited with assurances? I'll talk about being visited with an assurance from the Lord himself. It's going to be okay. Small moment. Let me give you peace in the meantime along with the promise of exaltation in the long run. In the meantime, also, verse 9, thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgression as they did Job. Yes, there were plenty of people charging Joseph with transgression. We'll see that in the next column. But not your truest friends. They are still, and friends meant so much to Joseph. That was one of the things that brought him back to Nauvoo and on to Carthage when the original plan was to cross the, the river and begin the westward trek under Joseph's direction. When he found out that people back in Nauvoo were, were concerned that he was abandoning them. Remember Joseph's statement? If my life is of no value to my friends, then it is of none to me. And he went back to be with his friends and then to die for his friends. Thou art not yet as Job. Oh, that yet has some some foreshadowing, some foreboding there. Will I someday be? Yes, Joseph. There will be closer friends that do contend against thee. There will be those close to you that will charge you with transgression. From there in verse 11, he begins speaking more of those who are falsely accusing Joseph. You see, that was the thing with Job. His friends, the, the understanding at the time, and this you see it in, in Lehi's counsel to his sons. There's truth to this, but there's error also. It's, it's only half the story. What they kept saying was, if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. And there's truth to that. 
but every time Lehi says, if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land, I picture Job raising his hand on the other side of the room saying, well, that wasn't exactly my experience. Uh, sometimes, even when you do keep the commandments, you don't prosper. Sometimes you suffer. But that took a while for even Job to come to understand. The, the mentality was sin equals suffering. His friends saw the suffering, so they assumed the sin. Job knew the, that there was no sin and, and therefore wondered why the suffering. It took some interesting experiences for Job at the end of that book for him to realize that, it, it, that sin does not automatically equal suffering or vice versa. That God does allow the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That sometimes the wicked do prosper, at least in the short run. But in the, in the meantime, Joseph, you're not yet as Job. Though the day will come where you're more and more like him. You see, starting in verse 11, he, God does admit there are those who are charging you with transgression. And that would include some former friends. Thankfully, who would also become future friends once again. Remember that beautiful uh, letter of forgiveness to W.W. Phelps. Come, dear brother, now the war is past, and friends at first shall be friends again at last. You were a friend who charged me with transgression. You were a miserable counselor, to borrow Job's uh, description of, of his so-called friends. But I will forgive you. That's the kind of heart Joseph had. Now, speaking of those who do charge Joseph with transgression, look at verse 11. They who do charge thee with transgression, their hope shall be blasted. Their prospects shall melt away as the hoarfrost melteth before the burning rays of the rising sun. We're going to see some talk about dew at the end of this revelation also. Well, here we see some frost in the morning, but it melts. And, and what is he using that as a description of? Hope and prospects being blasted or melting away. It's interesting to think about those who, who accused Joseph falsely of transgression, whether it was the apostates in Kirtland, whether it's the Missouri mobbers uh, that, were, that were driving the saints out of the state. What was their hope? And what did they think their prospects were? What were they after? To me, it's interesting to see those who attack Joseph Smith. And part of me wonders, what is your motivation? What's your hope? What are you hoping to accomplish by doing so? Uh, by, by, by slandering him, by libeling him, what, what, is your, what are you hoping to accomplish? Because those, those hopes will be blasted. The prospects of what, I, I don't even know, will melt away. The Lord continues, also that God hath set his hand and seal to change the times and seasons, to blind their minds that they may not understand his marvelous workings, that he may prove them also and take them in their own craftiness. Interesting he would use that phrase, times and seasons. The saints themselves would use that to, to name one of their newspapers, right? It's a scriptural phrase and it has to do with the predictability of things. That time is, allows us to synchronize our watches, right? And we can predict, I know we're going to meet at this time in this place. Or seasons, they just, they come like clockwork. Or they come in normal succession. And you, you reap or you sow in one season and reap in the other. These people, though, who think they're planting, again, their hope, their prospect, they think that they are, they are sowing deceit. 
or false or accusations against Joseph Smith, and that eventually they will reap a harvest of, of, of lost reputation on the prophet's part, that the work of God will come to naught. Or even after Joseph's martyrdom, when the newspaper headlines read that Mormonism is dead. Oh, really? No, that, that God will change those times and seasons. They're, you're not going to, to, to reap what you thought you were sowing. Those prospects will not turn out. Your hopes will be blasted. And you can bank on it. God has set his hand, his seal. There's this promise. Those, the enemies of, of, the, of the saints, their minds will be blinded. In fact, they already have been. They don't understand the marvelous workings of God. And so their craftiness, the subtle craftiness of men, that's going to come to naught as well. In fact, they'll be taken in their own craftiness. Those that dig, you know, those for the, for the New Testament, those that dig a pit for their neighbor will fall into it themselves. It's exactly what the Lord is promising here. Verse 13, because their hearts are corrupted and the things which they are willing to bring upon others and love to have others suffer may come upon themselves to the very uttermost. That's that same falling into the pit that you dug for someone else. In fact, yeah, I believe it's in Deuteronomy, one of the part of the law of Moses to keep false accusation at bay was that whatever punishment would have been inflicted upon the other person, you face yourself. I mean, it keeps fall, nobody wants to falsely accuse. If like, wait a minute, if I accuse them of something and the punishment that they were going to have to face, I end up taking? Again, in other words, if I, get, if I was scapegoating them for something they didn't do, then I end up being the scapegoat. The punishment falls on me. Yikes. Yeah, I don't think I'll do that. That's exactly what the Lord is warning them about here. Your hearts are the corrupted ones. Don't accuse Joseph of a corrupt heart. What you thought you were going to do to them will come back to haunt you. 14, that they may be disappointed also and their hopes be cut off. Not many years hence that they and their posterity shall be swept from under heaven, saith God, that not one of them is left to stand by the wall. That's a euphemism for the way it's phrased in the Old Testament, which is a lot more stark than that. But this idea of the loss of posterity, of it being swept away, you, you get a sense of the civil war on its way and the havoc it will wreak in, in Missouri primarily. I mean, the, the third most battles, first was Virginia, Second was Tennessee. Third was Missouri. Those border states right along between North and South. And what they, what they had to endure. Posterity swept from under heaven. What happens to the proud and the wicked in Malachi 4? There's a verse that's on Joseph's mind a lot, thanks to the angel Moroni's repetition of it when he was a teenager. It'll be, it'll be cut off. No roots, no branches. You get that sense in verse 15 also. 16, cursed are all those that shall lift up the heel against mine anointed, saith the Lord. And cry, they have sinned when they have not sinned before me, saith the Lord, but have done that which was meet in mine eyes, and which I commanded them. Now that verse fascinates me in light of the, the hit that Joseph's reputation has taken in this information age, which doubles as a misinformation age. I've, like I said, I, st I study anti-Mormonism, and it's amazing how much has been said against the character of Joseph Smith, that people are lifting up the heel against the Lord's anointed, trampling him underfoot, so to speak. But what's interesting, and, and, they, and there is historical evidence of Joseph's oh, money digging when he was a youth, or practice of plural marriage uh, later in life. 
The question is, though, as we see in verse 16, was that a sin or was he doing as God commanded him? Now, with money digging, it's not that God commanded, but was God, so much of that is simply culture. And the time period out on the frontier among the less educated particularly. And the question is, was Joseph deceiving people? Or did Joseph have some kind of gift that God knew could be, oh, uh, sanctified and turned to Syriac vision? That, oh, there's more important, it's like, it's like what we saw in Salem, there's more, there's more treasures than one, okay? You're not looking for buried treasure, you're looking for golden plates, and the treasure is the record that's written upon them, okay? Uh, don't, don't, don't accuse him of deceiving people. When Joseph felt he had a gift, and people felt he did too. It's not just that he was hiring himself out, people were hiring him. There's, there's something to that. Uh, or with plural marriage. Was, the question is not, did he practice it? He did. The question is, was he commanded to or not? And that's where you and I have to wrestle and have to pray and have to see, by their fruits you shall know them. And what do I know about Joseph Smith? Even those who lived the, the principle of plural marriage during his day, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we get to section 132, to, to wrestle with that, they had to as well. Is Joseph in trying to involve me in sin, or was he commanded to do this? It's interesting to, to study those women that were involved in plural marriage and the men that were involved in it as well, and their independent gaining of testimony, that this is the Lord's will for us at this time. Was it sin or was it obedience? That's the question that we're left with. But I do love what the Lord says there in verse 16. Joseph was doing as I commanded him. Verse 17, on the other hand, those who cry transgression do it because they are the servants of sin and are the children of disobedience themselves. Is there a certain hypocrisy behind some accusations? Not of what Joseph did, but of why he was doing it. Uh, yeah, I remember during reading... Uh, in the Journal of Discourses, some of the defense from the Quorum of the Twelve, for example, about plural marriage that was being practiced in Utah at the time. And the Eastern newspaper editors were just up in arms over this scandal. And, I, and it was just interesting how frustrated so many of the saints were by that treatment by the Eastern press when so many of the people that were writing these scandalized articles were guilty of, it's like, yes, we're living plural marriage, but we're responsible for every family that we take this is not some kind of, oh, get out of jail card as far as avoiding family responsibility. No, this is spirituality, not sexuality that we're after. And how dare you accuse us of these things when you, and yes, you have one wife, but what about your mistress? Or what about your serial, yes, you're monogamists, but are you serial monogamists in terms of one wife and then divorce her because you're tired of it. And now let's have another wife and then divorce her and then have another and so on. There, there was so much frustration about what they perceived as hypocrisy, crying transgression, when the people that were making those cries were transgressing themselves. Now in 18, those who swear falsely against my servants, that they might bring them into bondage and death, that's part of their hopes, part of their prospects. Well, 19, woe unto them, because they have offended my little ones, they shall be severed from the ordinances of mine house. 
mine house. There's the temple. Temple ordinances, offending little ones. This sounds like the context of family. We'll see later in this revelation about a millstone around the neck because you offended little ones. That's how the Savior uses the phrase. But to be cut off from temple ordinances, like, like I said before from Malachi 4, there's the logging camp instead of the forest of family trees. There's no roots, or no roots and no branches. And that's what the Lord is warning them of. In 20, their basket shall not be full. Their houses and their barns shall perish. They themselves shall be despised by those that flattered them. I think there we get a hint of some of those hopes and prospects that were mentioned back in verse 11. I want a full basket. I want a full barn. I want to be flattered by people who look up to me as my reputation is so high compared to the reputation of Joseph that I've lowered. See, it's all about the differentiation there. What's interesting to me is compare verse 19 and 20. 19 is a loss of spiritual blessings. But the irony there is that those that attack religion often don't the threats of losing spiritual blessings don't do much for them anymore because they don't believe in the spiritual blessings or the spiritual threats. Oh, the judgment of God? I don't even believe in God anymore. Losing the ordinances of God's house? I don't care about God's house. I mean, it's, it's interesting to see those who are no longer worried about any kind of divine displeasure because they've just they don't, they don't believe it any, any of it anymore. But verse 20 then hits a little closer to home. What about temporal blessings? Now again, some would say, ah, no, that's not what I'm, what I'm worried about. But I'll put it this way. I had a student come into my office once and he was talking about leaving the church. And he said, I just, I don't know. I mean, I've never, I, I grew up in the church. It's all I've ever known. I don't really know life outside of it. And so maybe it would just be fine. Uh, I'm thinking, I, I don't intend to like take my name off the records. I just want to go on sabbatical for a while. And I'd heard that from others. Sabbatical. Okay, early retirement with an intention to come out of retirement someday. Well, some people get really used to retirement and they never return. For some, sabbatical ends up being just the end of it all. But as we talked more and he felt pretty set, no, I think I'll do it. I, I did say to him, well, just be aware that on your best days, maybe you won't notice much of a loss between having the gospel and not having the gospel. But if you're going to run this experiment, make sure that you have a control group as far as seeing what's it like not to have the gospel on your bad days. When life is hard and you wish that there was a community of saints that loved you in spite of yourself and that people would come to your rescue because it was their calling to, if you think about just, or even the, the presence of the Holy Ghost there to comfort and console, the perspective that you get when you, when you know that your afflictions will be but a small moment. If you see the, the hard times, then you might sense a difference between what the gospel was doing for you and what it isn't. I get a sense there in verse 20, even in, in when hard things, when baskets are empty as our barns, when nobody's flattering you, instead they're despising you. Will you miss the blessings of God then? Now in 21, they shall not have right to the priesthood, nor their posterity after them from generation to generation. This one actually reminded me of the curse of Canaan. When, when Ham, you remember Noah and his son Ham, and Ham uncovers his father's nakedness and, 
and his, his son is cursed. And I've always wondered about that. Now, sadly, through much of Protestant history, that was used as a justification for slavery and racism and so on. That's a false interpretation of that passage. It had nothing to do with, with racial issues, or skin color, anything like that. But what was interesting is Canaan didn't do anything wrong. And that's the part that I've always been confused about. If Ham did something wrong, shouldn't Ham be cursed for what he did? Well, in a way, I'm sure he was. But what's interesting about his posterity, who did nothing wrong, they weren't cursed for anything, but they were cursed by their father's wicked act. It cut them off. As he kind of sawed his branch off from the tree, well, all of the, the branches that grew out of him were now disconnected from the trunk as well. I think there's something about those who, again, the, the rights of the priesthood will not go to their posterity. Now, again, we don't believe that children will be punished for their parents' sin. Not punished for them. But, oh yes, many times children are punished by their parents' sin because those children are cut off from the blessings that could have been flowing through that family if their parents had stayed faithful. I get that sense in verse 21 also. Now 22, this is the other half of what he was hinting at about offending my little ones in 19. 22, he finishes the thought. It had been better for them that a millstone had been hanged about their necks and they drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that is strong language, admittedly. It was strong language when Jesus used it in the New Testament. But these are strong warnings against cutting yourself off and cutting off posterity of offending little ones that are, that are believing you in your, in your misinformation, in, in your slanted attacks, in your false accusations. In verse 23, Woe unto all those that discomfort my people and drive and murder and testify against them, saith the Lord of hosts. A generation of vipers shall not escape the damnation of hell. That's more of the Savior's language from Matthew 23, for example, as he is uh, decrying scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, and what they're doing. The Lord is doing similar things to those that have turned against the saints there. Interesting, too, the idea of discomforting my people. I mean, it's one thing to drive them out of the state, to murder them along the way, to testify against them, to drum up these false accusations so that the governor feels justified in, in exterminating them. Compared to all that, that first phrase, to discomfort? I mean, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Then again, do you remember the first phrase that comes out of Isaiah's mouth after the scattering of Israel? This is Isaiah 40. He's been warning them for 30-something chapters about the consequences of their own sin, but they don't repent. They reject his message and move forward. And sure enough, the, they have to pay the piper. And the northern tribes are, are scattered. And the southern ones all, are almost destroyed too. But what's interesting is, as soon as the, the historical chapters in the middle are done, and it describes what they endured, and then we get back to Isaiah's beautiful poetry in chapter 40, the first thing out of his mouth is not, I told you so, which is probably what I would have said. His first words, and this to me is the most merciful note in all of Handel's Messiah. Isaiah 40 verse 1, comfort ye my people. Can you hear that beautiful tenor holding out that long note? Comfort ye my people. 
even when they deserved it. What's interesting, well, to me, the irony here is even if, what are, what are you accusing the saints of? Those are false accusations. And yet, as we saw through much of the revelations we've studied this far, the saints were not perfect. And the Lord chewed them out even more than he chewed out the Missourians. Okay? Uh, was Joseph perfect? No. Were the saints perfect? No. Did they deserve some of what they got? Yeah, probably. But what's interesting, based on Isaiah's language, even when somebody gets what they deserve, don't rub salt into the wound. Don't, don't discomfort them. In fact, do the opposite. Comfort ye my people. Now more than ever they need it. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Because those who are part of that problem, verse 24, Behold, mine eyes see and know all their works. And I have in reserve a swift judgment in the season thereof for them all. The judgment will come swiftly, but not necessarily soon. It's going to come in the season thereof. For these Missourians, the Civil War is still decades away. But when it came, it came quickly. Swift judgment in the season thereof. Verse 25, For there is a time appointed for every man, according as his works shall be. And whether that has to wait for final judgment, or if you receive some of the consequences in advance, there is no escaping that justice of God. And then in verse 26, it all shifts again. It's interesting to watch this back and forth the pendulum swing between justice and mercy in some ways in section 121, where you see Joseph just crying out in, in, in need and the Lord responding with comfort. And then we shift from mercy to justice and, and the injustices that the saints have suffered and, and, the, and the saints crying, Joseph praying to, the, to God for justice to be served. And it would be. But then starting in verse 26, you see this beautiful shift towards what God is offering those who will be faithful to him. Beware of the, of the consequences of sin. That's the previous set of verses. But open yourself to the blessings of God that he is willing to pour out upon you if you'll just be faithful. If you'll just endure it well. He says in 26, God shall give unto you knowledge by his Holy Spirit, yea, by the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost that has not been revealed since the world was until now. I mean, if there's one thing I know about trial, it's that they are incredible learning opportunities. And as Joseph languishes in these prisons for nearly six months, boy, does he grow in knowledge through the, through the unspeakable gift of the Holy Ghost. In this same letter that he writes, Joseph said this, the things of God are of deep import and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them out. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. Thou must commune with God. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing in Liberty Jail. You want to talk about contemplating the darkest abyss. He's in it right then. You want to talk about solemn and ponderous thoughts? That's all, he, that's all he's got. <laughs> and, that's all, and he boy, does he have the time to do it. His mind was stretching as wide as the utmost heavens. 
and it changed him. He began to understand, he received knowledge from God's Holy Spirit, unspeakable truths that helped him see his sufferings in perspective and prepared him for the second half of his ministry as, as dispensation had. Dispensation of the fullness of times, in fact. Look, look at 27. Which our forefathers, so anyone from prior dispensations, which our forefathers have awaited with anxious expectation to be revealed in the last times, which their minds were pointed to by the angels as held in reserve for the fullness of their glory. The Lord says something similar to the apostles in his day the dispensation of the meridian of times, when he says many prophets and holy men have longed to see the things that you see and haven't seen them, to hear the things that you hear and they never heard them themselves. Well, if that's the meridian of times, imagine the dispensation of the fullness of times when all things are gathered together in one, in Christ. And as those things were gathered through the prophet Joseph, Oh, those forefathers waited with anxious expectation. Yes, you're suffering in prison, but what a day you live in when all these truths are being poured out from heaven. And for you, oh, what do you remember? Is it Hebrews 11, where all those other prior ancient worthies lived in anticipation that they, they longed to see a city not built with hands. Some, they held out hope for something better. They put their eggs in the last day's basket. And Joseph, you're holding the basket. Oh, rejoice in this. Verse 28, a time to come in the which nothing shall be withheld. Whether there be one God or many gods, they shall be manifest. I mean, is this a hint towards what Joseph is going to reveal later in the King Follett Discourse? Is his mind beginning to expand? He's got, he's got nothing to do but sit and have his solemn and ponderous thinking going on. Uh, and as, is he beginning to understand the truths of God that have never been so clearly manifest as what he's going to manifest in, in the coming years? Verse 29, all thrones and dominions, principalities and powers shall be revealed and set forth upon all who have endured valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is part of that being exalted on high if you'll just endure it well for this small moment. If you will endure valiantly, and notice, I love the, the, the careful language that is used here, valiantly for, not just valiantly in, it's not like enduring well, not just enduring. It's not enough to endure valiantly in the gospel. I'm just going to stay here and kind of hunker down and, and hope that I outlive the, the enemy. No, we're going to endure valiantly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I, am I enlarging the borders of Zion? Am I striking a blow for the kingdom? Am I, am I enduring valiantly for it and not just in it? And notice all these thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. It's not that they're so simply revealed. So you see them, you receive them. They're set forth and not just set forth before you, set forth upon you that those, are, those thrones and dominions are for you. We'll see more of what that throne looks like at the end of this revelation. Joseph, what I'm trying to prepare you for and prepare the saints for. Oh, the, the, the crown of glory, the eternal weight. Weight requires strong muscles. 
And so, no, yes, that's the reason I'm not yanking up the bar. I am a restrained spotter. And someday you'll thank me for it. In verse 30, also, what else will he reveal? If there be bounds set to the heavens or to the seas, to the dry land or to the sun, moon, the stars. It's as if the Lord is, is wondering, Joseph, do you know the limits of creation? Or the limits of the blessings I have in store for you? The limits of my, my providence? If I hath not seen and ear hath not heard and never has entered into the heart of man that which God has prepared for those that love him. Oh, the bounds set. Oh, it's infinite, my son. Verse 31, all the times of their revolutions, all the appointed days, months, years, all the days of their days, months, and years, all their glories, laws, set times, shall be revealed in the days of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Oh, Joseph, these are your days, and they're glorious days. A flood of light, even in that dark dungeon in the dead of winter, Open your eyes to this. God's word is not bound. In verse 32, According to that which was ordained in the midst of the counsel of the eternal gods of all other gods before this world was, that should be reserved unto the finishing and the end thereof when every man shall enter into his eternal presence and into his immortal rest. That which was ordained from the counsel of the gods Wow, talk about putting things in proper perspective. This small moment, I know it feels like a long time to you, okay? Five and a half months feels like an eternity. But back up and see it from my perspective. Back up and see it from pre-mortality's perspective. When, yes, Job reminds us, you and all the other sons of God shouted for joy. Elder Maxwell used to joke that, yeah, we shouted for joy when we were presented the plan. But then we came to earth and we sometimes wondered what all the shouting was about. Uh, what was I so excited about again? Uh, I really signed up for this? It sounded so much better and easier in theory than it's turned out to be in fact. Well, indeed. But you did shout for joy. That's what the council in heaven was all about. There's actually uh, several passages in the book of Jeremiah, particularly, that talk about the council. Now, we King James readers get a little confused or we miss the point because it's spelled C-O-U-N-S-E-L. And that version, counsel, is, is an object in terms of, let me give you some, some wise counsel. Let me give you some advice. And so we read those verses and we think it means, oh, did we, are we open to the advice of God? When in basically every other translation other than King James, I don't know what they, if they just <laughs> didn't have spell check in 1611. But all, practically every other translation, it's counsel, C-O-U-N-C-I. And that means an organized group of people that come together, a council. Okay? Listen to these verses from Jeremiah. For who hath stood in the council of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word? Then a few verses later. But if they had stood in my council and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. You see, there, we're, we're wondering in Jeremiah's day about true prophets versus false prophets. It sounded a little similar to what Joseph's going through. Oh, that was a false prophet. All these false accusations that are making him out to be a false prophet. Well, where were you in the council of, of God? 
uh, as he says there in 32, the midst of the council of the eternal God of all other gods before this world was. Were you there? Joseph was. As a dispensation head, you better believe he was, foreordained to this calling before the world was. Now, this counsel from Jeremiah, that's what, that's, that, there's your credentials. We can trust you in this life because we came to trust you even before we came. You were there in the pre-mortal council. Remember Abraham's version of that. These, he stood among the noble and great ones and said, these I will make my rulers. There's space there. We'll create an earth whereon these may dwell. We'll see if they'll do all that we ask of them, even if it makes them look bad among other people who then will falsely accuse them of things when all they were doing was obeying the commandments of God. It's interesting, this idea of, were you in the council? Just change the spelling in those two verses in Jeremiah 23, and they make so much more sense. One of my favorite translations for that passage comes from the contemporary English version that puts it this way. But I, the Lord, tell you that these prophets have never, these false ones, have never attended a meeting of my council in heaven or heard me speak. Doesn't that make it so much more clear than, oh, have they stood in the council of the Lord? S-E-L. It's like, no, have they stood in the council, C-I-L, in heaven where I was speaking? The, the contemporary English version of C-E-V goes on. If they had been in a meeting of my council in heaven, they would have told you people of Judah to give up your sins and come back to me. That's what called and chosen prophets do. They cry repentance. And yes, it ruffles feathers and shakes boats, but they're trying to save people. That's what Joseph Smith has been doing this whole time. He was there among this council before the world was. And the things that we learned there, those first lessons, as we'll see in section 138, will come flooding back as we part that veil of, of, well, as we part the veil of unbelief so that God can part the veil of ignorance. He will teach us. That's what these verses are all hinting at. Verse 33 then kind of crescendos to this beautiful climax. How long can rolling waters remain impure? I mean, that reminds me of Elder Maxwell saying about redemptive turbulence. These, these rolling waters, I mean, it's the stagnant pond that becomes... Oh, polluted. But the rolling waters, the living water, it's moving, it's pure. Well, think about all of the redemptive turbulence the saints have gone through. Yes, they had things they had to work on. They weren't Zion, and that, therefore they couldn't build it yet. But as you go through all of this, this growth and purification, as you go at the rolling waters, feeling drowned almost at times, I don't know if I can survive these, these roaring rapids, well, if there's a refiner's fire to burn out impurities, there are also rolling waters to make us pure. How long? Not long. Remember the Joseph kept asking, how long is this going to happen? How long do we have to endure these things before your, your heart is softened towards us? Well, I got on my own how long. How long can rolling waters remain impure? I'm just trying to work the impurities out of you. Let that silt settle to the bottom so it is pure water up above. Now he holds to the metaphor a little longer. So how long can rolling waters remain impure? What power shall stay the heavens? And again, the heavens that he's talking about in these last few verses is a revealing heaven. 
a God who teaches us, who doesn't always rescue us from our trials, but gives us purpose and meaning as he explains them to us. And as he how teaches us and helps us grow along the way. So what power shall stay the heavens? As well might man stretch forth his puny arm. I love that description. It, it's feeling more and more appropriate to me these days. Okay, the older I get, the punier my arm starts to feel. As well might man stretch forth his puny arm to stop the Missouri River in its decreed course, or to turn it upstream as to hinder the Almighty from pouring down knowledge from heaven upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. That is such a powerful image. The mighty Missouri River. I mean, where it connects to the Mississippi. If you were to trace the Mississippi back to its source and the Missouri back to its source, the Missouri is even longer. Uh, to see, I mean, they, they would have known that river. Uh, remember earlier, it was, it was danger upon, the, upon that river. It, there's such a, a torrent, a flood. There's such, there's rapids. It's, this is a mighty, mighty river. And to think about putting your arm in it to stop it, I mean, to dam something that is so, oh, in, in, unavoidable, unstoppable, let alone turn it back up course. Are you serious? I actually had a little bit of fun with this verse as I was studying the Missouri River and trying to see what would it take to, to stop the Missouri River from, from flowing? What would it take to turn it back upstream? The mighty Missouri is so powerful. There are dams and reservoirs all up the, up, upstream, which stand as witness to the fact that the mighty Missouri is just going to keep on flowing. We're going to put dams up all over the place because it's, its continual flow will generate continual power. We're going to create reservoirs because they will keep filling up to be able to give water to all the land around it. At Kansas City, so close to Independence, where the Saints would have first gotten really familiar with the Missouri River, the average flow is over 55,000 cubic feet per second. Now, if I did my math right, that's enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool about every second and a half. Can you imagine? Yeah, puny arm. Try to turn that one back. Or with all the power that is generated, now these are just rough estimates, but if a one megawatt generator can power 650 homes, give or take, the average is anywhere from four to 900, then the dams along the Missouri River can provide enough electricity to power 1.8 million homes. That to me is amazing. Again, and that's just taking a verse way too literally, okay? But I just think of Joseph remembering that mighty river and using it as this metaphor. I mean, that, the Missouri River, we are being flooded by a river of hatred, of anger, of false accusations, of persecution. Missouri itself is bearing down on us. Uh, again, if you were to personify the Missouri River, as the, these, this mob that is sweeping down and, and sweeping the saints out of the state entirely. Well, you think that flood is unstoppable? That's nothing compared to the flood of light and truth that I am trying to pour down upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. Now, this is a tough education. It's the school of hard knocks. But if you will simply endure it well, I will crown you with an understanding of your trials, a perspective that is eternal in nature. The puny arms, that's actually what the mob has. 
And puny arms are what you end up having if you think that there's anything that can stop God from, from revealing truth. This is a God who speaks. No wonder Joseph said that it was more than his meat and drink to make the saints to understand the, the visions that roll like an overflowing surge before my mind. Oh, there's a mighty Missouri. There's a river of truth. To, to think of this overflowing surge. My friends, it's, we've been studying it all year. And the kind of truth and light and wisdom and knowledge that God is willing to pour down upon our heads. Don't stand in his way. Nothing can. And then he makes another shift. And from verse 34 to the end, it's incredible. These are some of my favorite passages in all of scripture. I, again, not that Joseph was predicting hydroelectric power, but right after talking about the Missouri River, he does shift his conversation to power and its sources. He says in 44, Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And then he asks the question, why? Why are they not chosen? How do they get, how do they get to the first step and not make it to the second? Remember back in section four of the Doctrine and Covenants where it talked about those, anyone who has desires to serve, ye are called to the work. But to be qualified for the work, it took faith and hope and charity and love and an eye single to the glory of God. Called on the one hand, qualified on the other. Well, again, similar here. You got the first step. You were called. But are you chosen? Something happens in between those two to get in the way. And here's the Lord's answer to his own question. 35. Why aren't we chosen? Because our hearts are set so much upon the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men to the point that they don't learn this one lesson. Now we're going to see what that lesson is in just a second. But the problems, hearts set too much on the things of this world as opposed to what? Well, the things of a better. The, those, those saints that anxiously anticipated a better day. Do we? Or are we so focused, so have the blinders on and we only see what's happening right now? This but a moment, whether it's but a moment of suffering or but a moment of ease and prosperity, it's nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory God designs to give us. So don't get caught up in the things of the world. You'll end up being called, but not end up getting chosen. They aspire to the honors of men as opposed to the honors of God. There's your hope blasted. There's your, your prospects melting like the frost. There's better things if you'll, if you'll live a better life. Trust in better promises. What's the one lesson that we're not learning? The lesson that if we understood well enough, we wouldn't get, get trapped by the cares of the world. We wouldn't care so much about the honors of men. Verse 36, here's the one lesson. That the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. And that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. So here's this power source. We're not talking hydroelectric. Okay, We're talking heavenly. And that heaven is the source of that power. And the only way we can access it. I mean, the plug has to reach the outlet. And if the, if the outlet is in heaven, then we better make sure that our, our, our cord goes just that high. The rights, they're, they're inseparably connected. 
And the only way we can handle it is on righteousness. If you've ever vacuumed, and when you get to the point where you end up unplugging it because you went beyond the bounds of the cord, if we are living outside the reach of heaven, if our righteousness isn't, isn't tied in to the righteousness of God, if, if it's not a secure plug, then there goes the power of our priesthood. Now, 37, we might have it, yeah, that they might be conferred upon us, it is true. Yes, I was ordained. But when we undertake to cover our sins, or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, ooh, that's unfortunate. There's, there's no tolerance there. Any degree. Then what happens? Behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. The Spirit of the Lord is grieved. And when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. So it's not just that our plug somehow reaches heaven. It's that heaven is trying to reach down to, catch, to get a hold of the end of our plug. Nobody has a cord long enough to get all the way up. But in God's mercy, he condescends to connect with us. Unless, that is, we do something to offend him. If I am claiming priesthood or position or, or prestige or popularity or whatever it might be to say, well, look at me. And I'm using that to try to keep you from not seeing the sin that I'm covering up. If I'm doing it to gratify my own selfish human pride rather than to give all glory to the Father in heaven. If I'm using it to try to exercise control or dominion if I'm lording over someone instead of simply turning them to the Lord, if I'm trying to be chief among them without becoming first the servant of all, then the heavens withdraw. I've offended it. And it's not just me pulling out of the plug. The plug is retreating from my presence because I'm not worthy of it. The Lord is grieved. And amen to my priesthood. Now, yes, you had the priesthood. It was conferred upon you. It is true. But there is a difference between priesthood authority and priesthood power. And for authority, all you needed was ordination. But for power, you need righteousness. Because that power comes from heaven, and it can only be handled and controlled on principles of righteousness. You can't handle that. Then you, despite your ordination, you don't have power in the priesthood. This verse always reminds me of an experience that a colleague of mine shared. His dad, I believe, I think it was his dad, was the president of the Manti Temple. And at one point, he was just walking through the temple, and uh, unbeknownst to them, he was right behind a couple that had just came in and, and gone through the recommend desk and were headed back. And he was just walking, kind of just minding his own business, but he couldn't help but overhear the husband kind of growl at his wife, thinking they were alone in the hallway. As he said to her, taking the language of the endowment completely out of context, he simply said, now you listen to what they say in here. I hold the priesthood, you do what I say. Yikes. So here is a husband using the priesthood as his claim to exercise control or dominion or compulsion. And yes, there was a degree of unrighteousness and it was a great degree. And this temple president who heard this and was shocked by it, well, he quickened his pace and caught up to this couple who didn't realize he'd heard them. And he kindly 
put his arms around them and said, hello, brother and sister. Um, I'm the temple president here in Manti. Um, I don't know if you've been, how many times you've been to the temple, but would you like a tour of the temple? I, I could show you some parts of the temple that you've probably never seen before and probably had some time before the session. And so they thought, sweet. I mean, we get behind the scenes. Awesome. Well, the tour of the temple consisted of a trip to the principal's office. I mean, he marched them straight to his office and sat them down and said, uh, brother, um, please don't be offended, but I, I couldn't help but overhear what you said to your sweet wife. That because you held the priesthood, she had to do what you said. And I just needed to clarify some false doctrine there and, and explain to your sweet wife that she doesn't have to do anything you say just because you hold the priesthood, because you actually don't hold the priesthood. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? I was ordained by my father. Blah, blah, blah. And he's just, you need to see my line of authority? So no, no, no. That's not about the authority I'm concerned. It's about power. And it's about the unrighteous use of power, which then cancels out the power because you're nowhere near the power source. He explained these verses to this brother and comforted his, the, the, this woman, this wife, and hoped that things would, would turn out better once a husband realized that that's not the way priesthood power works. That is not the amen to the authority of that man. Verse 38 described his situation. Behold, ere he is aware. So it happens before you even realize it. It's amazing how quickly... I mean, the speed of light, right? There's electric power. And how the moment it gets unplugged is the moment you're, the, the, the vacuum dies. Ere he is aware, he's left unto himself. There's no, there's no divinity behind you. There's no priesthood power backing you up. You are left to yourself. To kick against the pricks, to persecute the saints, to fight against God. Whoa, that, that, that escalated rapidly. Well, yeah, ere he is aware. To kick against the pricks, that's the language the Lord used with Paul on the or Saul on the road to Damascus. A prick was like a cattle goad. You take a stick and you'd, you'd sharpen one end and then poke the back of the animal or poke its legs to try to get it to move. But sometimes those animals were so stubborn and didn't want to be coaxed along that they would just kick back to try to get, get away, away you know, from whatever was poking them. Well, imagine if you ended up, up kicking the prick. So instead of just this gentle nudge, it ends up you smashing your hoof into that. Now that would hurt. And it's as if the Lord were saying to this misguided Saul, 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 it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, he says. It's like, I know you're causing, you're in pain. And you're doing it to yourself. You're bringing this pain upon yourself. Don't. Don't kick against the pricks. It does you no good to fight against electricity. <laughs> You're going to lose that battle. And you claiming with indignation that, you know, I have the authority and you have to... No, now you're kicking against pricks. You're not moving in the direction you should. And what happens as a result? You persecute the saints. In other words, you stop keeping the second great commandment. And you fight against God. You stop keeping the first great commandment. Because what's the only thing that allows you to have that power? You're plugged into the source. There's connected with God. And you're using it to benefit others. There's connected to your fellow man. Priesthood power to both God's daughters and sons 
any authority being used to bless, to, to do the work of God has to be for God's glory and for other people's sake. The opposite is what he's describing there in verse 38. Then 39, we have learned by sad experience. And that experience is the saddest when it's personal experience. That it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. Yeah, the nature of the natural man, that is. And thankfully, the word almost is there. This doesn't apply across the board. Some people can be trusted with power, with authority. But it's the sad experience that we've learned that it's almost all men. As soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. I love the way the Lord phrases this. It's, it's just a little authority. And in fact, I don't even know if I want to call it authority. It's what they think is authority. You put a badge on somebody and man, all of a sudden now they're the, the new sheriff in town. I don't know if you've, uh, you probably have people that are popping into your head. Uh, it became a, almost a joke among the youth in our ward after we went to this big stake encampment that the people at the, at the archery range became famous for unrighteous dominion because, man, he thought he was guarding Fort Knox or he was a five-star general over the military or something. It was, I mean, you can't, couldn't step out of line at all. And there was somebody else that was in charge of like the Nerf war where everybody has these Nerf swords. And boy, did he exercise unrighteous dominion as well. And we just kind of laughed to ourselves going, wow, a little, I mean, you're in charge of Nerf swords for crying out loud. That's a very little authority, as you suppose. But sadly, the natural man in these, in these uh, young, young leaders was to exercise unrighteous dominion. And hence, verse 40, many are called, but few are chosen. So if he says that in 34 and repeats it again in 40, what he describes in the middle is what stops us in the middle of our progress from calledness to chosenness. Have we learned this one lesson? Or are we hiding our sins and gratifying our pride? Are we exercising unrighteous dominion when we have none? That's the irony. Have you ever not wanted to follow someone even though they have authority over you? Compared to the other, the flip side, have you ever wanted to follow someone even though they had no authority over you? At least no Oh, temporal authority. No official authority. They simply had the authority of righteousness. They had the power of heaven with them. And you're just drawn to follow that kind of a person. That was Jesus. He had no official authority from the Jews or the Romans. And yet the world has followed him ever since. The Christian world. It's, it's amazing to see. And then he teaches us another lesson. That's the one lesson that keeps us from, from tapping into power. Then let me give you another lesson to, to plug straight into it, okay? To bring heaven back if it's withdrawn. Verse 41, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. That means unfaked. Because if you're faking it, they'll know, believe me. What I love about 41 is how he says it at the beginning. This isn't just priesthood power and authority. It's just personal influence. So even if this has nothing to do with a religious environment, your personal influence, how do we, how do we affect other people for good? And notice what he said. It's not just that it ought not 
to be maintained in negative ways. It cannot be maintained in negative ways. You understand the difference there? And it's one thing for him to simply say, it shouldn't be, it ought not be uh, used in unrighteous ways. No, it's, it's even worse than that. It just, it can't. It's not just that it's wrong. It's downright ineffective. It's not just that you shouldn't do it. It's, it you can't do it if you want it to work. Because people will see right through your unrighteous dominion. And they'll buck against it. They'll, they'll, they'll sink their, their heels in the ground and go, no, you can't make me. It's so interesting to watch that with little children, for example. The kind of people that are small enough that we really can exercise strength and power because we have so much more of it than they do. And yet even a child, it's just this, ah, they fight against it. My son, when he was little, I always used to call him my Geiger counter for unrighteous dominion. A Geiger counter is a piece of equipment that allows you to read radioactivity. Okay, so if there was, you know, some, you know, a bomb that went off or just some kind, something in war or whatever that you're worried about possible radiation. So it's got to be a very sensitive piece of equipment to be able to pick up any traces of radioactive material that's that's present. And my son of my five kids, he was the most sensitive to any hint of unrighteous dominion. I used to joke that I could be a fairly lazy father with some of my other children. If, they, if I asked them to do something, they asked me why, I could simply say, because I, I, I told you to. Or half the time, most of the time, they wouldn't even ask why. I, I asked them to go clean the room or to do a chore or whatever, and it was just, okay, I'll do it. They knew that, well, I mean, that the command was all that they needed, but not my son. It was interesting in his case, it was like, no, why? And I realized, I can't just get away with barking out orders. I have to explain to him why it's important. He wants to know. And, and he had the personality type that if I was in any degree of unrighteousness, I mean, the, the, the girls, it could have been, the, the Geiger counter could have been buried the needle, like, no, 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 dad's being unrighteous. <laughs> he's, he's trying to just pull rank on us. And, and as long as you live under my roof, you have to do what I say, right? The kind of dad lines we can use. Well, my son was, was immune to dad lines because he was so sensitive to the radiation of unrighteous dominion. And even when I thought I was being all of those things, persuasive and long-suffering and gentle and meek and loving, deep, deep. No, no, they're just particle, Dad. It's just a little particle. Like, ah, okay, I got to get better. And, and what he taught me best was not just that those attributes, those Christ-like attributes described in 41 and in the verses beyond it, it's not just that those are required to be Christ-like. Those attributes are required to be effective as a leader at all. I mean, sure, barking out orders might have good short-term consequences, but the long-term ones are lousy. And vice versa. The short-term might be invisible almost. It's just really hard to get them to do anything. Oh, but the long-term for them and for you and for your relationship together, it's not just that it ought to be done in the best way. For it to work, it has to be. It cannot be maintained in any other way. I, I have personal witness of that. I, I look at my, my wife 
and my sister-in-law. Those are the two mothers I've seen mother the most. And it's amazing to see the persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and unfeigned love. It, it's a moving thing, and it's the only thing that really moves children in, in righteous directions. Verse 42, he adds to the list, by kindness, pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy, without guile. You see, if the soul is being enlarged without hypocrisy, then it's natural growth. It's not some kind of falsely inflated ego on our part or falsely inflated authority when amen to the authority of that person. No, it, our souls enlarge. And so do the people that, that we're trying to lead. There's this growth together with no hypocrisy and no guile. I'm not trying to trick someone into, into obeying me. They, they can sense in my unfeigned love. They can recognize in my kindness, my pure knowledge, that light cleaveth unto light, like we saw back in section 88. And truth to truth and wisdom to wisdom, knowledge to knowledge. It's like to like. And as I am being more Christ-like, people are drawn to me just as I was drawn to Christ to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean that there's never a need for, for correction. It doesn't, like, like I said, this doesn't always come easily in the short term. And so how do I make corrections? 43 is the best verse I've ever seen on how to do it. Reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love toward him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy. See, speaking of natural men and women, what the natural man in us that wants to come down harshly on somebody and just exercise unrighteous dominion is met by the, the, the natural man in, in the other person that puts their dukes up and wants to fight back. I mean, bad leaders spawn bad followers. And, and the lack of Christ-like attributes on both parts makes this impossible to get anywhere. It becomes a matter of enemyship instead of leadership. Like you're coming down on me, well, I'm coming back at you. That's not correction, that's an attack. And you're just doing that to put, try to put me down so that you can come up. Well, that, you have to be careful with that. So how do you do that? How do I offer correction in a way of righteous leadership instead of perceived enemyship. Well, 443 explains it all. Reprove means to correct, to censure. Okay? Betimes means soon, or in season, or before it's late. So interesting, the timing of this. I need to correct. I need to do it in the right time. Now that might mean immediately. It might mean Let's let some time pass and, and tempers mine or theirs to cool. Uh, but I need to do it before it becomes an ingrained habit on their part. I need to do it in a way or at a time that they'll see the, the importance of, of making some of these necessary changes. And so I need to reprove betimes and do it with sharpness. Now, sharpness is not back to the idea of kicking against pricks. Okay, I'm not poking them. And sharpness is if you're old enough to remember old TV sets that had some knobs uh, and the knobs would one would be like color and one would be contrast and usually there was one for sharpness There was an electronics company called sharp. Well, what's that all about? We're trying to be as crystal clear as you can be No fuzzy edges and so that's how you would and we would call it focus 
if you're looking at a camera or a projector or something. And so that sharpness makes sure that the, the lines are clear, that I'm being understandable. I need to correct, I need to do it in the right time, and I need to be clear. So reproving be times with sharpness is correcting quickly with clarity. How's that? Uh, and as he says in the next phrase, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't know about you, but often I, I know I'm moved upon by something when I'm correcting my kids. But it's not always the Holy Ghost. And that's something I've got to get better at. I actually remember once when my son was in need of correction. I needed to reprove him betimes with sharpness. And it was such an interesting experience because it was a, situ a tough situation. I knew I needed to be strong. But I knew at the time I was being moved by the Holy Ghost. And I had... It was such an interesting experience to be so in control of my emotions that it wasn't anger, it wasn't frustration, it wasn't disappointment. It was an honest desire to help my son learn something that needed to be learned. And I remember, this shows how, the fact that it was memorable lets you know that I'm, I'm, I don't do this all the time, that, that, I, that this is something that I need to work on. And in fact, uh, if you need a second witness of that, my wife at the time was like, honey, honey, wait, wait, um, careful, cal calm down. And, and it's as if she was worried that I was being moved upon by something less than celestial. And it was an interesting experience just to look at her with a smile and not to be defensive because I wasn't being offensive and simply reassure my wife, I've got it. This time I'm, I'm in control of myself, which is the only way I can ever hope to offer any kind of control for someone else. So it's okay. I got this one. No need to worry that I'm being moved by a lesser emotion. This one is spirit-directed. And, and especially the end of that verse. To show an increase of love. To prove to them. To give them evidence. There, there's a sense of, again, I'm trying to prove contraries here between justice and mercy. Okay? And, and there are times when moved upon by the Spirit, I have to take a step towards justice and help you see that, that this was a time where reproving was necessary. I'm trying to be as sharp and clear as I can be in that step towards justice. But to, to, too often for the recipient of that correction, a step towards justice is a step away from mercy. And so what we need to do then is as quickly as we can show an increase of love, return to the mercy side so that they know I'm trying to stay balanced all the, the, the whole way through. I wasn't getting my, my licks in. I wasn't poking you with my prod. I was moved simply by love unfeigned. Kindness. Largeness of heart. No hypocrisy. No guile. No anger. No unrighteous dominion. I love you. Which is why I, you matter to me. And how you turn out matters to me. And I am so far from, from perfect at these things, but I am grateful for a perfect Lord who reproves me betimes with sharpness and lets me know where I've been off. And I know that is moved by compassion and, and lo pure love. I'm grateful that he always, that's the amazing thing about God's calls to repentance. They always lift us. So often in scripture, when somebody says an angel comes or something, they, they're brought to their knees. But then the first thing the angel says is, arise, get up, let's do better. And I will 
show an outpouring of love so that you know I'm on your side, as I always have been, even when I corrected you. That's where 44 comes in. That he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. So powerful. God is faithful. And he wants to bind us to him with cords stronger than anything that would bind us in a different direction. Death, hell, sin, suffering. No, I want to bind you to me. Then 45 and 46, the end of this magnificent revelation, another set of let's. Remember the let's we saw at the beginning. God, just please yield to your compassionate nature. And here the Lord is helping us overcome the natural man and yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit to let the better angels of our nature guide our behavior. In 45, let thy bowels. Earlier, Joseph had prayed that God's bowels of mercy would be filled on behalf of the saints. Well, now the Lord is asking us, let our bowels, our, our guts, our, our womb, uh, what we're what we're really made of, the, the heart of us, we would say, but our bowels, let them be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith. Interesting. Wouldn't that already be included? Well, I think the Lord is trying to just specify. It's not enough to love your neighbor. You have to love your enemy. It's not enough just to love those of the household of faith. That should be easy. I mean, that's how Jesus ends Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you only love those that love you, what reward have you? That's, even publicans can do that, right? Uh, I've, I've been guilty of parental publicanism. I, I've sometimes told my wife that I, I'm really patient with kids that require no patience of me. Well, that's easy. Even publicans can parent that way. Can you love those that don't feel deserving of love? Because do any of us really deserve the love of God? No, but he pours it out upon us without measure. So let our bowels be filled full of charity towards everyone, not just the household of faith, but all men. And then the other let, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Now garnish, we sometimes picture a little sprig of parsley on the plate. Like, oh, that's nice. It's a little decoration, but I don't really, I don't, I'm not going to eat it. Uh, and it, was it really necessary? Now, yes, garnish can mean decorate or adorn, but garnish can also mean to furnish and supply. And to let virtue garnish thy thoughts. I think too often we think of it, okay, here's all my thinking. And yeah, there's a little sprig of virtue over there in the corner, a little green. Nice. Uh, it's got to be more than a decoration. We don't just adorn an occasional thought with virtue. We it's virtue that supplies our thoughts, that furnishes us with them. Can you imagine if it's virtue that's telling us what to think and how to think and who to think about? That's incredible. And as a result of those two attributes coming together, if I, have, if I am motivated by love and if virtue is, is supplying every thought, then what happens? Here's the promise. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. Now, confidence waxing strong. Can you imagine being confident in God's presence? And that's Paul's language, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Just march on in, knowing that thanks to the grace of God, you, you're worthy of being there. You have been motivated by love your whole life. There's first great commandment, second great commandment. 
and you're worthy of the Holy Ghost. If you're worthy of God's Spirit, why wouldn't you be worthy of God's presence? Why would you not feel confident there? I remember once early on in my career having to teach a very large class. Uh, it was the first big institute class I'd ever taught, and it packed the chapel. And I was just a few years, actually, I was the same age as a lot of my students. I was a brand new seminary teacher, but during the summers, I got to teach institute. And, and it was down at BYU, and it was, it was a blast because it was just, I was a college student, basically, they were, and we just studied the gospel together and had a great experience. But I remember at times going, I'm getting nervous. Got a chapel full and then the overflow in another room. And it's like, ah, can I meet their needs? I, I, I don't know anything more than they do. But I remember it hit me one day. I'm not feeling overly nervous stepping in. Why? What's giving me that confidence? And I, it, thankfully, it wasn't pride. As, as I thought about it, because I didn't have anything to be proud of. But I remember the more I thought about that feeling that the Lord just blessed me with, like go and bless your brothers and sisters. Go teach and make a difference. And I, re I realized it grew out of this verse, DNC 121.45. And I realized if I could have confidence in God's presence, then being confident in the presence of his kids is no big deal. Uh, and what does it take? It takes virtue and charity. If I know I'm worthy of the Holy Ghost, the comforter. And if I love the people that I'm serving or teaching, what's there to fear? I love these people. Uh, why should I get nervous staring into a camera? Well, because the camera isn't my friend. But you on the other side of it, you are. And I hope you feel my, my bowels are full of charity towards you. I just wish I knew you. I wish we were, there was no camera between us and we could sit down and really talk about these things. There's something about loving those that you serve and being worthy of the Spirit's guidance that banishes all fear, any anxiety, any, any nervousness, no butterflies in the stomach because there's no room in your stomach. It's full of charity, okay? Your bowels. Uh, and the Spirit is with you. I, I love that for anyone who's nervous in a calling. Oh, yes, there's, we get nervous. I get that. But you want to have confidence in God's presence and in the presence of those that he loves, then just love them and be worthy of the Spirit's guidance. And then the last part of that phrase, of that verse, the doctrine of the priesthood. And we, we spent the last page talking about the doctrine of the priesthood and where power really comes from. We studied the doctrine of the priesthood in section 20 and 27 with keys and with uh, section 84 and section 107 and things about keys of the kingdom with the first presidency in the quorum of the 12 in 91 and, and uh, 112. There's so much doctrine of the priesthood scattered throughout scripture. And it'll just start to make more sense to you because you're living it. And it, it becomes just an extension of who you are. It distills upon your soul as the dews from heaven. It, you just wake up in the morning and the grass is wet. No sprinklers needed. And finally, 46, the Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion. How could it not be? You're confident in God's presence. Of course, his presence is going to stay with you. Thy scepter will be an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. Compare that to what we saw at the end of section 25. Now, the priesthood talk spoken of in section 121 is not just for God's sons, okay? 
We have to understand that. Power in the priesthood. Ordination is for God's sons, but power in the priesthood and authority to act in his name is for all of his children. Okay? But if, to whatever degree you want to associate 121 or, or habitually have associated 121 with men and section 25 with women, since that's the revelation to Emma Smith. Now in 25, he said, what I say unto you, I, Emma, I say unto all. So I think, I, I want to claim a stake in section 25. That revelation is so marvelous. I don't want to be cut off from it just because I'm male. And I wouldn't want my wife or daughters or mother or sisters to be cut off from section 121 because of their gender. But to whatever degree you want to assign the two as male and female, how does section 25 end? You'll be given a crown of righteousness. And how does 121 end? You'll be given a scepter of righteousness and truth. These are kings and queens. These are priests and priestesses. And what are they given? Crowns and scepters. Because they can be trusted with that kind of leadership. That, that brand of authority. It's righteousness. It's truth. And thy dominion, he goes on to say, which is in more language about authority and power, thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion. Of course it would be. What subject would ever want to depose a sovereign from the throne if that's the kind of sovereign they happen to be? No, thy dominion will be an everlasting dominion. And without compulsory means, it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. No compulsion, no unrighteous dominion, no coercion. It's not, no wonder your dominion isn't being forced upon you because you're not, being, you're not forcing your dominion on anybody else. It'll just come. People will follow you not because they have to, because they want to. They, they can't help themselves. They're being drawn in higher directions in the same way you are, being drawn by the love of God. It will flow, just like the Missouri River, just like the revelation God pours down upon the heads of the Latter-day Saints. This, this letter, this revelation is such a masterpiece. And I pray that we can live into it, that we can step into the flow of this revelation, of this, of this light and truth, this river, and let it carry us upstream to the source of all righteousness itself. In fact, I'm so caught up in that flow, I almost forgot we're in Liberty Jail, where compulsion and unrighteous dominion is, is so oppressive. I think in some ways the Lord is trying to put all that in perspective for Joseph and the others. You, you think what you're going through is, is an example of unrighteous dominion on the Missourians' part? Oh, it is, granted. But it's nothing compared to the kind of unrighteous dominion I'm trying to guard you against. Now that you know what it feels like on the receiving end, never be on the giving end of it. Now Joseph's letter continues. Okay, we're not done with 29 pages. Okay? And so 121 quickly grows into 122. It's a brief revelation, but so powerful and so personal as far as what Joseph Smith has endured. Remember section 121 was so full in the middle section about false accusation. And they're accusing you of evil when all you've been doing is keeping the commandments of God. Well, 122, this reassurance, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. Fools shall have thee in derision. Hell shall rage against thee. But on the flip side, verse 2, the pure in heart, the wise, the noble, the virtuous, shall seek counsel 
and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand. Personally, I want to be part of group two rather than group one. I don't want to be among the fools that deride Joseph. I don't want to be there in hell raging against him. Now, the earth is going to inquire after his name. Jo uh, the, Moroni said that to him as a 17-year-old. Your name will be had for good and evil among all nations. Yes, the earth is inquiring after the name of Joseph Smith. And there are plenty who deride him and accuse him. But verse 2 is equally true. The pure, the wise, the noble are being drawn to his teachings. They are seeking counsel. There's his advice. There's his teachings. There's his theology. I want to learn from Joseph Smith. The things I have learned from him have been life-changing for me. Authority, I want his leadership in my life. I want the ordinances that he has restored. If, if counsel is his theology, authority is his ecclesiology, and I want that too. I want to be part of that priesthood organization. And his blessings, even beyond the, the spiritual ones, which are incredible. I want the temporal blessings of, of a life with the word of wisdom, of tithing and fasting, and the life that I have learned actually it reminds me of what Richard Bushman said. Uh, such a, I mean, the consummate scholar and historian, and people, he's award-winning for his historical work in early America. And I mean, a Columbia University professor, but also a man of great faith. He was a patriarch. And people in the historical field that look down on him and can't because his, he's so award-winning. They look up to him in spite of themselves, but they look down on his faith. They look up to his scholarship, look down on his spirituality, and they're like, how could you believe in Joe Smith? I mean, visions and angels and gold plates and stuff? Seriously? I mean, as a historian, you don't have enough evidence to stand on. And it's like, well... I do have enough evidence to place faith in. There'll never be enough evidence to, to obviate faith. There'll always be faith required, and that's a good thing. But as Richard Bushman has said, to me, the proof is in the pudding. By their fruits ye shall know them. And when I live the kind of life that the gospel restored through Joseph Smith teaches me how to live, I like the kind of person I'm becoming. That, to me, is a very profound and, and straightforward testimony. There's something about the, the counsel and the authority and just the blessings that I receive under the hand of Joseph Smith. I want his advice, counsel. I want his, those ordinances, authority. I want his friendship, his example, his leadership, his, his fun, his personality. There's the blessings that I receive from under the hand of Joseph Smith. It's a far cry from the counsel and authority and blessings I receive under the hand of Jesus Christ. I do not worship Joseph, but I do honor him along with millions of the pure and the wise and the noble and the virtuous that see in the prophet of the restoration similar purity and wisdom and nobility and virtue. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah and after having done so, was willing to commune with the rest of us. I testify of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God. And I don't say that ignorantly or in a shallow way. I have read what people have accused him of. I have also read what, what 
he produced under inspiration from God. And I will be among those who stand with the prophet. You see, verse 3, Thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. And there are so many traitors out there who are testifying against the prophet. But his people will never be turned away. And while I'm not a Mormonite, I don't follow Mormon, I'm not a Josephite, I don't follow Joseph, I am a Christian, and I follow and worship Jesus Christ. But in these latter days, as a saint of the latter days, I am honored to be considered one of Joseph Smith's people. And I, I will stand by him in that. Verse 4, Although their influence shall cast thee into trouble. That's exactly where he was. And into bars and walls. It's getting more and more specific. Thou shalt be had in honor. And but for a small moment. Remember that? It will be but a small moment. We saw back in 121. Just endure it well. But a small moment. And thy voice shall be more terrible in the midst of thine enemies than the fierce lion because of thy righteousness, and thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. As if it weren't good enough that your people will stand by you, your friends will stand by you. Better yet, God himself shall stand by you. Because of your righteousness, your, you will be a fierce lion, even if for now you feel like a fleeced lion. To me, it's like Aslan uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when he is sheared and bound and slain. That beautiful metaphor for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Oh, he comes back to roar again. And the fierce lion, Joseph would roar out of Nauvoo, even when he was behind bars and walls in Missouri. Verse 5, if thou art called to pass through tribulation. Now there it's like, wait, if? Uh, <laughs> you remember where I am, right, Lord? I'm, I'm passing through them right now. What do you mean, if? This is definitely a when. And usually in Scripture, the Lord does talk about tribulation with when rather than if. But what I love about this if and the 14 ifs that follow. In the next couple of verses, there are 15 ifs. And they're incredibly specific. And I love that, you know, sometimes when we're just speaking in realities, but we're describing them as hypotheticals. Like, I have this friend who went through this thing. And we're the, one, we're the friend. We're just talking about us. Asking for a friend, right? I think in some ways the Lord is taking these realities and making them hypotheticals. You know, if this were to happen, almost with a wink and a nod to Joseph going, I know exactly that this is happening to you. Like I said, the more specific they get, to me, it's as if the Lord is saying, Joseph, I know what you're going through. And, and to anyone else that's going through it too, because Joseph, you're not alone in liberty we'll all find, find ourselves fellow prisoners in what Paul called the fellowship of suffering. So if we go through anything, this is what the Lord wants to remind us of. If thou art called to pass through tribulation, if thou art in perils among false brethren, and that was Joseph there in Missouri, it'll happen again on the way to Carthage. If thou art in perils among robbers, if thou art in perils by land or by sea, Wait a minute, now we're getting, huh? When was Joseph in peril by sea? He didn't cross the ocean like the Quorum of the Twelve would to go to England. Well, there the Lord is channeling some more Paul. 
because some of this language has much to do with Paul's experience as he described his, his catalog of catastrophes. Uh, intense what Paul went through. But as the Lord is cataloging Joseph's catastrophes, again, he's putting him in, into, into good company, just like Paul. Verse 6, if thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, again, what we saw in the previous chapter, if thine enemies fall upon thee, if they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters, and if with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and of thine offspring and thine elder son, although but six years of age, shall cling to thy garments and shall say, my father, my father. This is getting really specific. Yeah, because this is exactly what happened to Joseph Smith as he was being dragged away for that first imprisonment. Can you picture his six-year-old son clinging to his father's clothing, wondering what's going to happen, crying out, my father, my father, why can't you stay with us? Oh, my father, what are the men going to do with you? I wish I had a six-year-old voice to be able to speak these words. If then he shall be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged to prison, and thine enemies prowl around thee like wolves for the blood of the Lamb. Again, it's amazing how well the Lord knows our sufferings. That he can write out the details of our hardest moments. I think there's something, again, that shared agony. This is Gethsemane in a way. This is him condescending to suffer alongside us with an infinite atonement that is also an intimate atonement. That he'll remember the dates and the places and the, and the feelings and the struggles and he'll remember it all because he chose to endure it alongside us. To me, there's something profound about the specificity of verse 6. It's no if. It's a when, and not just a when future, a when that was. And Joseph, I was with you. And I remember it too. He says in 7, If thou shouldst be cast into the pit, or into the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon thee, which is exactly what happened before Alexander Donovan came to the rescue, if thou be cast into the deep, if the billowing surge conspire against thee, if fierce wind become thine enemy, if the heavens gather blackness and all the elements combine to hedge up the way. You see, up to this point, we've been talking about physical oh, opposition from, from fellow mortals, enemies and things that, persecutors and false accusers and so on. What's here, though it's now shifting to more natural disasters. Wait, God, you're in control of this. This is the part you could spare me from. Yes, it is. But it's also the part I will prepare you against. That's what he said to the brother of Jared. Mountain waves dashing the wind, potential windows to pieces. Down in the depths of the sea. The fierce wind. Why? So that you'll know that I prepared you against these things. Hard times on the trip from Jerusalem for Lehi's family. Why so hard? Why did God not make it easier on them? He told them, so that you would know that it was by me that ye are led. All these, oh, God's divine restraint really is incredible. Now, from heaven to hell, above all, if the very jaws of hell shall gape open the mouth wide after thee. 
So whether it's, it's demons in human form, whether it's God and his perceived absence, whether it's, it's hell itself and it's, its brutally obvious presence in your life, know thou my son. There's that title, that intimate title again. Know thou my son that all of these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Yes, this is the school of hard knocks and tuition is steep. But the kind of lessons you learn from experience are worth whatever tuition might call for. You're, you're learning to be like me. And I wasn't spared from any of those things. I chose to join you in them. It will be for thy good, I promise. All things will work together for your good to them that love God, even hell itself. Verse 8, then, to put it all in perspective. The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? To, to descend below it all. It's, it's one thing to think of condescend, to come down with. I don't even know the word for to go beyond descend. That he descended below them all. It's why I've come to love the phrase hitting rock bottom. Because rock is one of the titles of Jesus. And so when somebody says, I've hit rock bottom, my, I rejoice a little. I feel sorry for their situation, but I think to myself, good, then you're finally back in contact with the rock that has always been beneath you, bearing you up. He descended below so that he could lift you high. Are we greater than he? You see, in part of this, this ordeal in the prisons, at one point, Sidney Rigdon was was they were brought back to court and Sidney Rigdon with his incredible eloquence he was one of the great preachers of the restoration he described all he had endured but perhaps caught up in the emotion of the moment he compared his sufferings to Jesus's and said that his were worse he said the sufferings of Christ were nothing to mine and the, the people were so moved by this that not only did they let him out of prison, they like passed around the hat so they could people could make contributions so he could, you know, go buy a new suit or something. We're so sorry for what you've been through. Man, we're worse than Jesus. No, no, Sidney. Not even close. And I, I wonder about that phrase. The Lord, the Son of Man, hath descended below them all. At one point, this, this son of mine, who has had a harder life than most, admittedly, at one point in his childhood, he's, far, he's, he's grown far beyond this. His maturity is, is wonderful now. But I remember at one point in his childhood, he was just feeling so bad about what he was going through and felt so bad for himself that in agony, he kind of cried out, My, I've had the hardest life of anyone that's ever lived. And you picture a little eight or nine or 10 year old suffering like that. And I tried to reassure him by saying, yeah, actually, son, there was a time when, when Joseph Smith was having a really hard time. And the Lord said that, well, it's... It's not as bad as I had it. And it's, it's not even as bad as Job had it. You see, the Lord had it the worst, but as far as mortal people are concerned, Joseph Smith and Job had about as hard a life as you can ask for. And my son rolled his eyes in frustration and said, that's exactly what mom said. And so I laughed, I'm like, okay, at least we're on the same page. We know our section 121 and 122. 
uh, and then he said, and I, I was just, I, I try not to laugh out loud, kind of keep the poker face that the parents are supposed to have. But after he said, that's exactly what mom said, he then like turned away and basically said, well, I guess I'm number three. <laughs> it's like, okay, you've Joseph, Job, and, and my son. And I just kind of laughed going, well, there's probably a few more up there, but, but yes, you do rank higher than I do. Okay. Jesus is the one who's descended below all. Then verse 9, therefore. So because of everything I've just said, therefore, acknowledging that I know everything that you've been through, therefore, knowing that I've gone beneath you, therefore, hold on thy way. Just endure and endure it well. Hold on. The priesthood shall remain with thee. That's not something they can take away. As long as you're tapped into the power of heaven through principles of righteousness, then that power will always be with you. Their bounds are set. They cannot pass. This river of persecution cannot overflow its banks. My arm isn't puny like yours is. <laughs> I've got this, Joseph. Thy days are known. Thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do. For God shall be with you forever and ever. Such beautiful words of reassurance. I'm not going to calm the storm yet, but I am here to calm the sailor. I'm not here to remove the burden, but I am here to strengthen the back. I'm not here to grant you escape from prison. Instead of, <laughs> instead of me breaking you out, I'm here to break myself in. Is there room for another fellow prisoner, Joseph, so that you can join me in the fellowship of my suffering? I've already been through it all. Section 122 then turns into section 123, which contains a lot more of the practical. So what are we supposed to do now? Remember, he's writing a letter to the saints that are huddling together for shelter in, in Illinois. And if 121 puts this into this incredible perspective of, of, of power and dominion and, and reassurance. And then 122 is comfort to Joseph's soul. And, and I've, I'm, I've been through it all with you and I'm here with you still. 123 then turns to those saints. Here's something you can do. You ever been in that situation where it's like, I just wish I could help them. Is there anything I can do? Well, here's some advice for the helpers. 123 verse 1, again, we would suggest for your consideration the propriety. Now, that's the softest, gentlest language instead of, you know what you ought to do, <laughs> or thus saith the Lord, or I command, or yeah, I'm the prophet, I'm, I'm giving you your marching orders. No, it sounds like Joseph listened really well to the end of section 121. No compulsion, no coercion, just persuasion, meekness, long-suffering, love, and faith. Okay. Well, how about just suggesting something for your consideration? There might be some propriety here. Okay? The softest language you'll ever get in a, in a, in a piece of advice. But here's the, the propriety of all the saints. Here's what you can do. Gather up a knowledge of all the facts and sufferings and abuses put upon them by the people of this state. I mean, section 122 clarified that the Lord definitely remembers the details. Do we? And can we help share those details with others so that they're their sympathy can begin to function. We saw that earlier in the, in the Missouri persecutions at the very beginning, that the more that they let people know about this, hearts were beginning to change. 
Remember, that was what finally helped Warren Cowdery gain a testimony that, that he'd never had, even though his brother had all these incredible experiences. It was the sympathy that was raised within him when he started realizing all that the saints were going through in Missouri. So gather up a knowledge. Write down your, your sufferings and your abuses. Uh, not only that, not just personal suffering. Verse 2, how about property damage? Also of all the property and amount of damages which they have sustained, both of character, mm, there's all that false accusations, a man's or woman's reputation sometimes is all that they've got, especially in early frontier America where your, your, your name or your, your word is your bond. Okay, So character assassination, personal injuries, and there were plenty of those, real property, so the, the losses, what you've suffered, what you've lost, what you've endured, Verse 3, also the names of all persons that have had a hand in their oppressions, as far as they can get hold of them and find them out. You see, if we're going to try to present a legal case, I mean, we're asking God to intervene. That was the beginning of section 121, right? Will you come and avenge us of our enemies? But what they learned back in section 98 about the, the parable of the importunate widow, the unjust judge, right? That you make an appeal to the local judge, and then to the governor of the state, and then to the president of the United States, and then to God, that in his fury to, to allow justice to be administered from heaven, since there's no justice being administered here on earth. Well, they're trying to do that. And so Joseph suggests for their consideration the propriety of, of making a case of this. We need to have evidence and proof and affidavits to be able to lay before Congress or to lay before the president. And that's exactly what they did. In verse 4, perhaps a committee can be appointed. Just perhaps. I'm just, I don't know, just thinking. <laughs> that's and they took the hint and that's exactly what they did. They appointed a committee to find out these things and to make statements and affidavits and also to gather up the libelous publications that are afloat. That's why there's more evidence about the, the character assassination, the damage of reputation. Verse 5, all that are in the magazines and in the encyclopedias and all the libelous histories that are published that, and are writing. And by whom? Yeah, and are writing. So this is present tense, not just the past. They're still ch ch uh, churning out this slander. And then this phrase, which, wow, it sums it up so powerfully. Present the whole concatenation of diabolical rascality and nefarious and murderous impositions that have been practiced upon this people. Wow, now that is a mouthful. I don't know if that's Joseph's vocabulary or the Lord's there, but concatenation, that's the whole conglomeration, the whole, uh, pile it all together, okay? The whole mix of diabolical rascality. Now there's, there's a great title. I hope those words are never used to describe anything I've ever done. Verse six, that we may not only publish to all the world, but present them to the heads of government in all their dark and hellish hue. As the last effort which is enjoined on us by our Heavenly Father, before we can fully and completely claim that promise which shall call him forth from his hiding place, and also that the whole nation may be left without excuse before he can send forth the power of his mighty arm. Again, no puniness there. Now, what's interesting about that is this last thing that God is asking of us. Again, we've, we've ex exhausted all of our mortal options, judge to governor to president. And that's exactly what they do. 
they do call for a committee that's appointed. They gather affidavits and, and publications and so on. They bring it to Congress. Actually, they present it to President Martin Van Buren first. That's the famous statement of, of him. Your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. It's an election year. Or even if he's not that self-serving, it's a state's rights issue. Well, they then go to, the, to Congress, and that's of no help to them either. Eventually, those affidavits found their way simply to the Library of Congress. And sadly, I don't know how much a librarian can do for that. It's actually interesting, in the early 90s, the BYU Religious Studies Center published a massive volume, almost a thousand pages. It's not light reading, not, neither in terms of quantity or content. It's called the Missouri Redress Petitions. And it is a modern publication based on what they did in the 1830s and 40s to, to chronicle their calamities, to, to keep a record of their sufferings and loss. And there are hundreds of these affidavits. And that's only a drop in the bucket since there were somewhere between 12 and 15,000 people driven out of their homes. And we only have six or 700 affidavits. Now, even with that, the grand total of their losses that they ta uh, tallied up, including character assassination and all that kind of stuff, came out to over $2 million. In fact, the grand total was $2,381,984.51. I mean, that's how, down to the, the 51st penny, this is what, this is what has happened to us. And again, that was a tiny fraction of those who suffered on their way out of Missouri. Not enough to coax Congress into action. Not enough to pressure the president into enforcing the Constitution. But definitely enough to call forth a loving, merciful, and just Heavenly Father out of his hiding place to allow a nation to tear itself apart during the Civil War. Now, verse 7, it is an imperative duty that we owe to God, to angels, with whom we shall be brought to stand. So there's before the, the heavenly tribunal, the heavenly witnesses, and also to ourselves, to our wives and children. Now, there's the earthly witnesses. Call them all to the stand. Those wives and children who have been made to bow down with grief, sorrow, care, under the most damning hand of murder, tyranny, and oppression, supported and urged on and upheld by the influence of that spirit. You see how, what we're really getting at here. It's one thing to talk about all the things that, that mortal men have done to persecute the saints, but there's a, a stronger force behind that. And it's that same force that tried to destroy a 14-year-old boy in a, in a grove of trees behind his house that was about to usher in the final dispensation. This was the destroyer himself, and the destroyer seeking the destruction of, of members and Missourians alike. Notice how he says it at the second half of verse 7. The, this murder and tyranny and oppression is urged on. It's upheld by an influence, and it's the influence of the adversary. The influence of that spirit which hath so strongly riveted the creeds of the fathers, who have inherited lies upon the hearts of the children, 
and filled the world with confusion and has been growing stronger and stronger and is now the very mainspring of all corruption and the whole earth groans under the weight of its iniquity. It is an iron yoke. It is a strong band. They are the very handcuffs and chains and shackles and fetters of hell. I don't know if you could ask for greater eloquence here to describe the sufferings of the saints, urged on by a spirit that rivets falsehood upon people. A rivet? We talk about hammer and nails. We talk about screws and screwdrivers. But a rivet? The thing about a rivet, it's like this metal piece that you take two pieces of metal, and this is before welding was much of a possibility. And you cross over the pieces of, like you're building a ship, for example, cross them over, so it overlaps, and then you drill a hole through there, but you can't just screw it together because it's not tight enough. What they would do is they'd stick a piece of metal through the holes and then hammer both ends together so it flattens out and it rivets things together. Because you flattened it out, it, you, pu you pushed the metal together and smashed it down so it spreads out and, and seals the gap, Rivets aren't ever meant to be removed. You can't unscrew a rivet. You'd have to cut the thing off and then start something over again. To picture what the adversary is trying to do with inherited lies, with the creeds that deny who God is and his body parts and passions he feels for his children, to, to change the nature of Jesus, to to damn humanity from the get-go. No, those are things that are riveted upon people's minds to the point that, that they don't know how to love God and love their neighbor in the way that they should. And the restoration is trying to reverse all of that. That confusion growing stronger and stronger. I mean, the, the language of eight, an iron yoke, that we're just trapped in this bands and handcuffs, chains, shackles, fetters. Again, where's Joseph? You think the wor words like chains and shackles and handcuffs and fetters mean something to him now more than ever? But it's almost like he's saying, you thought these shackles were bad? Nothing. Compared to the kind of mental handcuffs that the world is under if we don't share with them the gospel. And because we are being so persecuted and falsely accused, who is going to listen to our testimony that will allow it to... Who's, who's going to accept our truth when that truth is what will make them free? No one. We need to get public opinion on our side. We need to help them see what we're suffering and our willingness to suffer rather than deny the truths that we are trying to share with a world that desperately needs the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll stay in my handcuffs as long as needed if it affords the world a chance to escape from the fetters of spiritual ignorance. Those are the chains of hell, as Scripture refers to it. Verse 9, therefore it is an imperative duty. He mentioned that in verse 7. This is, we're growing in, in persuasion. This isn't just, hey, a suggestion for your consideration. Folks, this is our duty, and it's imperative that we do it. An imperative duty that we owe not only to our own wives and children, 
the ones who have suffered and survived. How about also to the widows and fatherless, whose husbands and fathers have been murdered under its iron hand? They deserve justice more than anyone. Verse 10, which dark and blackening deeds are enough to make hell itself shudder and to stand aghast and pale in the hands of the very devil to tremble and palsy. Now, is this mere eloquence? Is this verging on hyperbole? I don't know. Because I wonder about verse 10. Is anything bad enough that the devil himself is shocked by it? Is there anything strong enough to jolt even in in the prince of darkness, a sense of troubled conscience? Something that even he would, would pale and tremble as if to say, what have I done? This has gotten worse than even I in all of my diabolical rascality ever intended for human beings to practice upon one another. If you remember the language in oh, Third Nephi, the destruction of the wicked, when he warns about the devil laughing and his angels rejoicing, or the vision of Enoch when he sees the Satan veiling the whole earth with darkness and how the great chain in his hand, and he looked up and laughed and his angels rejoiced. Oh, I wonder, even that level of, of callousness is it possible that human nature can become so, I don't know, so just, so horrible to one another that the devil's no longer laughing? It sobers even him. Have, have, can we get to that point? I, I pray not. Then verse 11, another imperative duty. It's an imperative duty that we owe to all the rising generation and to all the pure in heart. So not just those who suffered firsthand, but even posterity's sake, there's something to be said for inheriting these kinds of realities. And not to do it in a way that, oh, that now I'm all, it's not a family feud that we're trying to perpetuate, okay? But as he said in section 98 and 101 and the just war theory and so on, that these realities do pass down the generations. And as he describes it here, the rising generation needs to know the kind of metal of this, that the saints were made of in those days. We need to know just how much cheeks can be turned and how much we can suffer and still come through okay on the other side. I'm grateful to be, have been part of the rising generation that has benefited from the examples of those early saints. Uh, stepping into Liberty Jail in a trip to Missouri, and just sensing what the saints went through was a blessing to me, as I knew I could do a better job of living up and not being a weak link in the chain of my generations. He then says in verse 12, the real reason we need to make these things known. It's not just to get our stuff back in Missouri. It's not just to seek redress. It's to wake up the world and prick their conscience so they'll give us a chance to, t to tell them why on earth would you suffer so? What could possibly be worth that kind of self-sacrifice? Oh, let me tell you. And in the process, let me break the shackles and fetters of hell. Let me teach you the truth that will make you free. Verse 12, For there are many yet on the earth, among all sects, parties, denominations, who are blinded by the subtle craftiness of men, 
whereby they lie in wait to deceive and who are only kept from the truth because they know not where to find it. That is such a profound statement for all of us member missionaries that need to come out of camouflage, as Elder Cook once said. That, that was, I loved his phrase there. Quentin L. Cook just described the problem with, with us is that too many members are in camouflage. And here we are with the answers, but nobody around us knows. It's like working at Home Depot, but refusing to wear the orange vest or the orange apron, I mean. Uh, because, well, I don't want to have to stand out like that. It's your job. And you know, what, you know what aisle the thing is I'm looking for. Please come out of camouflage. Please, Latter-day Saints, let your light so shine before men. When, when, they, when they had the, the rolling blackouts in Northern California in an energy crisis years ago, and they shut down the electricity around San Francisco Bay until ship captains started to complain that we don't know how to get into the bay if, you, if the LDS temple on the Oakland Hills isn't illuminated. Because we've learned over the years that's the easiest way to get in. We just kind of channel ourselves right there through the Golden Gate and aim for the LDS temple, and that, that gets us through. We don't care about the rest of the lights around San Francisco Bay, but turn on, turn on the lights at the temple. And so they did. There's, there's something about us, if we turn down our light to the point that people who are already blinded by the subtle craftiness of men won't know that here we were the whole time with help, with answers, with, with clarity, with hope. Do they know us? And do they know that we had what could have helped them all along? I'm, I'm haunted a bit by verse 12. If people know me and don't know what I have to offer, then they are being kept from the truth because they don't know that I had it all along. Verse 13, therefore. So once we realize that, what must we do? Therefore, that we should waste and wear out our lives in bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness, wherein we know them, and they are truly manifest from heaven. You see, we started this chapter with, we need to make manifest the, the suffering of the saints. But how quickly does that grow into, well, that's just means to get the world's attention. We're not trying to get our land back in Missouri. We're trying to prepare the earth to become Zion and usher in the, the millennium and the new Jerusalem We've got to bring those hidden things, not hidden things that have happened to us so much as the hidden things that God wants to bring about for the entire world. That's the things that we can know. They've been truly manifest to us from heaven. This is the dispensation of the fullness of times. And so even though we're feeling pretty wasted and worn out from our five and a half months in prison, oh, the real wasting and wearing out needs to start once we're free. So we can share the gospel with a waiting world. Verse 14, these should then be attended to with great earnestness. I hope that describes our sharing the gospel. Great earnestness. Now verse 15, let no man count them as small things. For there is much with, which lieth in futurity pertaining to the saints, which depends upon these things. Now, does these things refer back to how we started? It does seem in some ways like a small thing. I'm just a bunch of affidavits and records and 
a thousand page book, uh, a bunch of records in the Library of Congress. Now, I, I wish I knew better what the Lord meant by what lieth in futurity. I, I have no idea. I mean, w would the government ever consider <laughs> offering redress? I mean, if they did it for the Latter-day Saints, I'm sure they have to do it for the Native Americans, in which case pretty much all of the United States is, goes back to their hands, right? And, and I think they knew what to do with it better than a lot of the, the settlers that displaced them. That, that's, that trail of, of tears is tragic as well. Uh, I have no idea what kind of redress is, it, would it even be possible or what else the Lord might be referring to with this, oh, that something about our future depends on this. But the admission that he says at the beginning, this is a small thing, but that's how the Lord works, by small and simple means. Great things are brought to pass. Small people, Joseph and Hiram and a bunch of other people in prison, small group of saints huddled across the eastern shore of the Mississippi. But great things will grow out of this. His analogy in verse 16 is a beautiful one. You know, brethren, that a very, a very large ship is benefited very much by a very small helm. A lot of varies there. Very large, very much, very small. Great things are going to happen, folks. A very small helm is all you need in a time of a storm, and the saints know exactly what storm they're enduring at the time. As long as it's kept workways with the wind and the waves. That's the key here. Small things in life can keep us workways. The small thing isn't going to control the weather. That would take a great thing, okay? God himself. But if you're in a storm, quit thinking of, of how to, to, to stop the wind from blowing or the waves from crashing. Work on staying work ways with the waves. If you get turned to the side and then a wave comes, then you're going to capsize. But as long as you can use a very small helm to keep things pointed straight on, face your fears, face the challenge, look into the wind. And as long as you are work ways, that's such a great word. Am I work ways? Uh, forget yourself and go to work. A young, uh, stressed out, stormy Gordon B. Hinckley was told on his mission, right? Are we workways? Am I, am I wasting and wearing out my life to help people know that the gospel's been restored and it's right here? And there are small things I can do as long as my hand's on the helm and with the Lord's help I can follow that liahona and turn it workways so I'm still facing in the right direction even if it seems like hell itself is blowing me backwards then I won't capsize. That's a small thing with a great result. And is my scripture study a small thing, keeping me in the right direction? Is my prayer, is my fasting, is my temple attendance? So many of those quote-unquote primary answers are small things that keep us workways with the wind and the waves. Therefore, 17. Have you noticed I love the word therefore? Therefore just kind of keeps the momentum. And says, okay, based on everything I've said, now do you understand the reasons? Like, consequently, as a result, because of all that, therefore, now that you know what I've said in these last three incredible revelations, dearly beloved brethren, God called me a son. I'm calling you dearly beloved brethren. Let us cheerfully, and that's a tough adverb when you've been in prison for, for five and a half months, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. And that power will be tapping into the power of heaven as we live those principles of righteousness. 
Let us do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. That, that's Moses at the, at the shores of the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of God. That was Joseph at Fishing River uh, as Zion's camp was coming in. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Oh, whether you're huddled in Quincy, Illinois, or shackled in Liberty, Missouri, stand. Stand with God. He stands with you. Reveal your faith in him, and he will reveal his arm, which is anything but puny. Do all you can, but trust in a God who does everything. More that there are more that be with us than those that be with them. Do it cheerfully. God is with us. I, I love the optimism you see at the end of 123 as compared to the suffering that is so palpable at the beginning of 121. You see what this revelation has done even for Joseph's spirits? Yeah, I hope they do the same thing for us. I am grateful for suffering saints who help us find cheer even in our sorrows we will someday see the salvation of God. You can bank on that. Now we've come to the end of what's been canonized from this letter. But other letters Joseph wrote earlier, and the rest of this 29-page letter he wrote here in, in March of, of 1839, it's, it's amazing what else is in there. These little gems of truth. And I just want to share a couple of them before we wrap up today's lesson. This first one is from a letter that he sent back in December. He'd only been in Liberty Jail for two weeks by then. He'd had a, you know, a month of other jail time elsewhere. But he said this, Know assuredly, dear brethren, that it is for the testimony of Jesus that we are in bonds and in prison. But we say unto you that we consider that our condition is better, notwithstanding our sufferings, than that of those who have persecuted us. To me, there's something there that it's, it's better to be on the wronged side than to be on the wrong side. I'd rather be an innocent victim of someone else's persecution than to be the person who's persecuting others. And, and Joseph could rest assured in that sense of innocence. From the same letter, God hath made broad our shoulders for the burden. We glory in our tribulation because we know that God is with us, that he is our friend and that he will save our souls. We do not care for them that can kill the body. They cannot harm our souls. Such great faith there. Rather than remove the burden, God usually strengthens the back. And the difference between the body and the soul, there's only one death that should really trouble us. And it's not the physical one. It's the spiritual. And Joseph was not in danger of suffering that one. Or how about this one? From a letter to Mrs. Norman Bull. This was sent just five days before Joseph wrote the letter that's in section 121-23. He said to Sister Bull, It seems to me that my heart will always be more tender after this than ever it was before. I think I never could have felt as I now do if I had not suffered the wrongs that I have suffered. That, to me, is one of the greatest things Joseph said in his Liberty Jail experience. I'm different now. My heart is just more, it's been tenderized it's been pulverized by what it's been through, but I have empathy for people now. And empathy always comes at a cost. 
But uh, scholars have, in studying the life of Joseph Smith, have, have many have commented, he just came out of liberty a different person. His heart had changed in ways that were such a blessing for the saints from that day forward. He also said, wrote to her, do not have any feelings of enmity towards any son or daughter of Adam. Wow, you might not be free of hardship, but you can be free of hate. It's incredible that Joseph was able to say that and trying to help the saints feel it and say it themselves. No enmity towards anyone. Get over that. How about this one? For our circumstances are calculated to awaken our spirits to a sacred remembrance of everything. Oh, we sing, count your many blessings. Well, have you noticed that adversity helps us do that? Boy, does it clarify things that really matter in our lives from those that just don't. And so, a sacred remembrance of everything. Or this statement, Dearly and beloved brethren, we see that perilous times have come, as was testified of. We may look then with most perfect assurance for the fulfillment of all those things that have been written, and with more confidence than ever before, lift up our eyes to the luminary of the day. That reminds me of what the Lord says in section 45, when the apostles were so troubled by the signs of the times Jesus had just given them. It's like, well, we have to go through all of that. And he says, yes, that's troubling. Perilous times, as Paul said, and as Joseph quoted. But if you see the, the signs of the times as far as destruction is concerned, then you're also going to see the signs of the times as far as redemption is concerned. And second coming, and Adam, yes, Armageddon is ahead, but so is Adam on Diamond, as Elder Maxwell once said. And if you've seen the problems, trust in the promises in other words, if God has a good track record prophesying of dark days, then trust his track record on promise, prophesying of the glorious ones. Joseph was banking on that, even as he endured the other. How about this phrase? A short one, but one of my favorites. The sheriff and jailer did not blame us for our attempt. Now, what Joseph was referring to there, it was they, several times they tried to escape. Uh, they were brought, somebody snuck in an auger and they were trying to kind of drill through the outer walls, which were massive and thick. Good luck with that. Uh, several times they, they tried. And I just love that one where he's admitting to the saints, yeah, we tried to pull off another jailbreak and we didn't, we didn't make it. We got caught. We got thrown back in. But even the jailer and the sheriff, they didn't blame us. That says something about their sense of justice or injustice in the case, as the case was. But to me, it also says something about can we be almost too submissive in our trials? That was Elder Maxwell's problem, right? When he first was diagnosed with leukemia and he said, okay, I've been teaching about submissiveness my whole life. Now it's time to, to live it. And his wife was like, honey, don't just roll over and die. Fight, live. And to me, there's something about, oh, jailbreaks or attempted jailbreaks. There's something about Yes, accept the Lord's will, but also look for solutions. And it's okay to try to find ways of, I don't know, of escaping the trials, the trials and challenges. If the Lord wants you in them, you'll, you'll end up staying in them, believe me. But even God won't blame you for an attempt to find better days. How about this phrase? We received some letters last evening all breathing a kind and consoling spirit. When we read those letters, they were to our souls as the gentle air is refreshing. Those who have not been enclosed in the walls of prison without cause or provocation 
can have but little idea how sweet the voice of a friend is. Don't underestimate the power of compassion. Even when you can't do anything to free people from their trials, even just to sit with them for a spell can make a difference. I have felt that in some of your comments and, and kindnesses as I've endured some, some hard times lately, and I, I thank you for it. It is as the air is refreshing. There wasn't much fresh air in Liberty Jail, but, but some came in every time a letter was delivered. How about this phrase? It will be a trial of our faith equal to that of Abraham, and that the ancients will not have whereof to boast over us in the day of judgment, as being called to pass through heavier afflictions that we may hold an even weight in the balance with them. I've mentioned this before, that Joseph often, I mean, he channeled Paul in his sufferings, but he also called upon the example of Abraham often. And there was a sense on his part that if we ever hope to receive an Abrahamic reward from our Abrahamic covenants, we will have to have Abrahamic faith through our Abrahamic trials. If you ever hope to pull up a chair next to Father Abraham, we better have some stories to tell of things we went through that prepared us for his companionship. Uh, Joseph sensed that and also prayed later in the same, uh, the same letter for a ram in the thicket. He was hoping for that the same God who spared, who stayed the hand and spared Isaac would also spare him and the saints. And God did. How about this last one? We know that we have an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, whose builder and maker is God, a consolation which our oppressors cannot feel. That was Joseph Smith in his temple prison of liberty. That was Amanda Smith in her temple prison in a cornfield outside of Hans Mill. To understand what those saints went through. And I hoped for you to understand whatever you're going through. To have a home in heaven not made with hands. I pray that you and I can endure our present prisons. In hopes of someday inheriting a heavenly home. I testify of God's goodness in, in being willing to be a fellow prisoner with us. The honor is ours when that's the case. I testify of, of gardens of Gethsemane, of prisons that give us liberty from the kinds of chains that, that truly bind us down. I testify of a glorious and good God who looks upon us with mercy. O oh God, where art thou? exactly where we need him to be.